Welcome to the podcast, To Sit by the River. A month ago, I packed my truck in fleeing wolves and deep snow, began driving south. Along the way, I was lucky enough to sit down with one of my favorite writers and podcast hosts, Joseph Von Benedict, in the small town where he lives in southeast Idaho. Today, after editing the podcast, I'm feeling a little more grand EOS. Joseph hosts the Backcountry Hunting Podcast, which I highly recommend. It's a deep dive into guns, shooting, and backcountry hunting with clear, useful information for the neophyte and expert alike. He also writes for a number of hunting and firearm magazines, including Field and Stream, Shooting Times, where he is hunting editor, and Peterson's Hunting, where he is the Western editor. Joseph and I dug into the ethics of long-range shooting and hunting, social media use, hunting as a tourist, and if you make it to the end, Joseph's own adventures raising a pack of lion hounds, and Joseph von Benedict's State of the Union address on the politics of firearms. I really enjoyed this conversation with Joseph, and I hope you do too. Okay. A good teacher can make you interested in something you think that you're not. Years of listening to Joseph Von Benedict's Backcountry Hunting Podcast taught me everything, little though it is, that I know about guns and shooting. I often tune into episodes that from the outset seem too technical, thinking I won't be interested. But Joseph's passion for the subject and immense knowledge parceled into readily, readily comprehensible explanations draw me in and ignite the rustlings of a fascination and desire to learn more. The other thing that draws me in is Joseph's voice. It's just damn good, and I'm jealous of it. Joseph, before getting into podcasts, did people urge you to do radio? Oh, I was now and then told that I had a face for radio. <laughs> 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 of course, you know, that's, a, that's an oblique insult, but uh, I'll take it. You know, sometimes you got to use the, the advantages God gave you. And mm-hmm. uh, if, uh, if a voice is helpful... Uh, yeah, I'm thankful for it. Mm-hmm. Well, you're blessed in your voice. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> just a strange one to start <laughs> off. So, uh, so uh, the Backcountry Podcast focuses a lot about guns. What do you love about guns? Oh, so many different facets of them. Uh, a wise man who many people don't realize uh, was as wise as he really is, the very depth that he had was uh, Louis L'Amour, one of America's all-time great American uh, Western novelists, right? And he once wrote that a man in love with learning is never without a bride. And I've kind of lived my life with that um, kind of that motto or that thought in the background. And uh, Louis L'Amour was, uh, he was a product of the Depression. He grew up during the Depression, was on his own, working full-time, uh, following the harvest north across America. By the time he was 15 or 16, he rode stamp tra- uh, tramp steamers around the world. He fought in World War II. He won 51 out of 59 prize fights. And then he became uh, really what is a great uh, literary man, but that wrote in a way that uh, the average guy really uh, connected with back in the Oh, the second half of the last century. 
And I grew up on his books and a lot of his ethics and um, you know the, the protocol by which he lived his life were distilled into me without me knowing it. That maybe is the most important one. And as applies to guns, oh, I've always been fascinated. Little boys are fascinated with weapons in general, right? And I guess I just had an extra dose of fascination with firearms from reading his books as well as my dad's various firearm history books. My dad had a, a large library, 7,000 volumes or so, and a lot on the history of firearms. And I, I read those over and over again. Everything from John Taylor's African rifles and cartridges to simple you know, coffee table type books on the history and development of firearms. And yeah, one thing led to another. I started competing uh, when I was 14, did really well with that for quite some time in various shooting disciplines and did a little bit of pseudo gunsmithing. And of course, always had a, a fascination with hunting. And I've hunted with long bows, recurve bows, uh, compound bows, and every sort of firearm from traditional flintlock muzzleloaders, you know, long rifles of the 18 or 1780s era, right up to the most cutting edge stuff available today. And the fascination's never left me. It's just one of those areas of study where you can always find more to learn about and, mm -hmm. and a greater understanding and capability with. What, what is it that differentiates guns for you? you that's sort, sort of true about most things, you know, but you're, I don't know, you might be a car guy too, but there's car guys, right? And they, uh, and they live, uh, if you are, I'd be really impressed because then you're into a lot of different things. Uh, but what is it about guns that's distinct? Uh, you, there's a depth of learning that you can get in anything. What is it about guns? Specifically? I, I think it's a combination of several things. One is the, the mechanical perfection that can be achieved in a fine precision rifle. And on the far end of that spectrum is the artistic perfection that can be achieved by a very fine craftsman. And seeing those two things come together and then applying yourself as a human in shooting as a discipline and learning to uh, execute as perfect a shot as possible so that you access all of the capability inherent within that firearm. It's, oh, I can't compare it to playing a violin, but with application, uh, you know, a good musician does things with his instrument that 999 out of a thousand musicians can't yeah. and with a firearm it can become the same sort of thing yeah i think that's a that's a perfect comparison is with an instrument i hadn't thought about it in that way guns are like like a violin the violin in my hands is nothing and i could i can't i couldn't even beat a nail into something with it because <laughs> but, but a gun you know in uh it's a machine, but without uh, when things don't line up, you could use it as a crutch. You could, you know, knock a nail in. Uh, it's, but all of the mechanical components line up to produce something which is more than that. Like the violin, you know, it's a it's an instance of magic when things uh, tee up in the correct order, and that that it's a, it's like a potion, and only when all of the ingredients are combined, and you're the final ingredient, and the artist. In in this instance, you're the artist and uh, or the violinist, I guess. But it, that makes that makes sense. You know, my speaking of art, my wife is a a really accomplished contemporary wildlife artist. She's uh, represented in galleries in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, Park City, Utah, and so forth. And 
she's British, like you are, and had never fired a, a firearm before I put one in her hands. And she was mildly interested because we were dating, right? She was interested in me. But until she first saw an extraordinary firearm, and in this case, it was a British-made shotgun about a century old at uh, a big convention, she didn't really connect the dots with the fact that a firearm can indeed be art. Mm. And you know the approach of the Art Deco movement and the ramp up to that in the late 1800s and right after the turn of the century had created this mindset in mankind and especially in the fine, uh, you know, the, I guess the cultural centers around the world that every item of uh, our existence should be attractive and appealing and should bring joy to our lives, right? Mm-hmm. And so these uh, great British firearms, I've, I've written this, you know, I'm a writer full-time, I'm a podcaster as well, but I've written before that the I believe the pinnacle of firearm making occurred in England mm-hmm. in the late 1800s and right up to about World War One. If you look at the artistry and the engraving, the quality of the wood and the wood to metal fit, where the the seams are absolutely indistinguishable except by you know visually, mm-hmm. they're so incredibly perfect. And yet inside, the mechanics are such that. Um, you know, those shotguns often had literal hundreds of thousands of rounds put through them during the life of their owner and then were passed down in excellent mechanical condition. Mm-hmm. So the, the artisans creating them were not just um, artists, but they were craftsmen. And they were combining those various elements of artistic beauty with a functional beauty and a, a mechanically perfect farm that could withstand contained explosions year after year in the tens and sometimes hundreds of thousands. So fascinating to me. You know, uh, Great Britain really began, you know, they were some of the finest early firearms builders dating clear back into the 1700s. I think the best of the craft kicked in mid 1800s. Probably peaked between 1880 and um, 1914, okay. somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. It's I what I call the golden age of firearms. Yeah, it's sort of the maturation of the industrial revolution into all the enlightenment principles are coming in. And sure. I'm thinking about well, there's a map behind Joseph <laughs> right now on the wall, but which is blue and has no ocean in it. But I'm thinking about the clocks that they developed oh, to sure. go across the ocean on these boats and. A lot of the needs of circumnavigating the world involved, you know, a very fine level of craftsmanship and mechanics, but also uh, hardiness, which <laughs> would be useful in a gun. You said a number of really interesting things. Uh, one of which is that you were origi- you're, you are a writer, and uh, now you're also a podcaster. How has the hunting industry and the outdoor industry as a whole changed in terms of making a profession in it? Can you make a profession as a writer in print journalism nowadays? And uh, w- what is the future for that? And can you make a prof- can you make a living podcasting? That's a challenging one to answer because when I got into the writing world, oh, I wrote freelance part time for about five years, and then fifteen years ago, I uh, got into it full time, and I've been making a full time living at writing since. But a friend and I, an editor friend and I, were trying to count up the full time gun writers, as we call them, in this realm, you know, that I write in. 
a few months ago, and I think there's less than 40 in the United States mm -hmm. that are making a full-time living at it. And it's getting harder because digital media is becoming more and more predominant and print media is slowly dying off and you get fewer and fewer readers that want to read a 3,000 word article and more and more that just want that two minute quick catchy read, right? Like they get on the, the internet. So I think you can still, if you really want to and you work really hard and you're really stubborn and really lucky, mm -hmm. you can still get into the industry and uh, make some money writing, but I wouldn't recommend making that your life's plan because I was lucky. I was very, very fortunate to get into this. The main reason I, you know, I started transitioning into or adding podcasting into my life was because I could see that it's um, a, a large player in the future of the way that information is consumed right? Mm -hmm. And something I really loved about it is that it's a combination of the things we love about retro media transfer, meaning radio, mm -hmm. and modern, because it's basically a radio show that you get to pick the topic, mm -hmm. the host, and when you listen to it. And yep. you can do it when you're driving, when you're mowing the lawn, when you're sitting on a ridge glassing for elk or deer, whatever the case is. So, I really liked the way that podcasts transfer, transfer information and uh, just conceptualized the Backcountry Hunting Podcast and gave it a try. And thankfully, it, it's um, done well. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Yeah, as the print journalism is moving toward shorter and shorter form, uh, you see this in the news as well. You know, people mm -hmm. are getting their news from these long form media shows as opposed to short 24 hour news segments. Uh, it, I think it's it says something positive to me about, you know, we see all sorts of cynical statements about attention spans in this technological day and age, but people are tuning in to two, three-hour podcasts regularly. Sure. You know, uh, it's uh, maybe hopeful for long-form journalism, but it is weird that that's, it's sort of the the rise of the long-form podcast is coinciding with the downfall of, downfall of long-form journalism. And that's interesting. I didn't know that uh, journalism is getting shorter and shorter. Yeah, and I think the average age of uh, you know a magazine subscriber now is between fifty and sixty. Mm -hmm. You know, a few young people still subscribe. I subscribed to my first shooting magazine, Shooting Times, which I now write for full time. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was eleven, I stole a little subscription card from the dentist's office mm -hmm. and had my mom subscribe, and then. Uh, one thing led to another, and I was actually the editor-in-chief of that magazine for four years, mm -hmm. and it, I learned a lot, and it basically gave me the the springboard from which to leap into writing full-time, mm -hmm. which I've been doing now for 10 years. Is the practice of preparing for a podcast different from that of writing a, a journalistic piece? Yes and no. There are a lot of similar elements. Um, creating a good outline up front is helpful for both, right? When I prepare for a podcast subject, I'll try and create a list of bullet points. For an article, I'll generally do a, uh, I call them subheads, you know, I'll go in and create a, an initial document and then that helps keep me on track and guide me through it, right? With a firearm review, let's say, a technical review, there's a lot of additional elements. Uh, there's test shooting, right, which you got to, ring out a firearm pretty thoroughly if you're going to give a authoritative review. 
And then photography. I've spent a lot of time becoming a, a moderately good amateur photographer because I could see that was part of, I mean, it's job security as a writer. A lot of the old time writers, they'd take a picture laying on a sidewalk and send it in and, and the editors would just, you know, it was black and white and they'd mm -hmm. plug it in because it wasn't as big a deal back yeah. then. Yeah. But interestingly, with, with phones now and, and the crisp, clean look that Apple and other companies have brought to people, everybody expects better imagery. And so yeah. if you don't provide that, you, you start making yourself obsolete pretty yeah. quickly. And even with your podcast, you're sort of expected to build a multimedia approach in, in that you've got your Instagram and, mm -hmm. you know, verse, which I think is really cool because it's, uh, it's very exciting to have all of these different, although maybe it's overwhelming to produce, it's if for the consumer, it's cool to have this, uh, you know, multidimensional uh, product. It, we're, we're not just seeing, we're not just hearing you over the radio and it's a, you know, a voice in the ether, but seeing these pictures of, oh, this is what Joseph's been hunting and here's his kid with this bigger buck than I've ever killed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's, are there things that are lost? So what is lost in a podcast versus a, uh, a journalistic essay? Mm, visual aids would be the first one. Uh, charts that you can sit and stare at and compare, you know, the velocity and the group size of this load versus that in a certain type of rifle or ammunition review, or even just seeing the scenery in a like a you know, backcountry drop camp DIY moose hunt in Alaska. In an article, you get visual aids and charts that you can sit and and just percolate in until you absorb the information mm -hmm. adequately. With the podcast, it's all audio, right? Yeah. Unless you're streaming it out over YouTube or something as well. And so it's hard to use um, any kind of visual aid. Generally, you have to try and create a, a mental picture with mm -hmm. your description. And uh, I find that actually a challenge that I enjoy. On the flip side, a podcast gives a little more time I don't want to uh, use the term incorrectly, but you more or less have a captive audience, right? Once somebody's sitting in their semi-truck or on the ridge glassing or <laughs> driving their lawnmower, they're kind of just going along doing their job while they listen. And if you want to dig in for five minutes onto why ballistic coefficient is so important for long-range shooting, you can do that. Where in an article, if you were to go on for three or four paragraphs on that, you'd lose your reader. Right. Yeah, it's conducive to digesting a different type of information. Whereas mm -hmm. uh, on a on a podcast, I'd never be able to digest, you know, numbers and statistics that's, and graphs. That's a good point. Uh, and uh, whereas, but you can get deeper. That, that's that's cool. And has 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 making a podcast been successful? And it's it's part of your professional work now. Yeah, it's it's getting there. We continue to work to try and grow it and. The biggest challenge, honestly, is that when I started the podcast, I was writing full-time, so often 50, 55, sometimes 60 hours a week, plus family of four kids, and my wife works. She works from home, but she's an artist, right? She spends a certain number of hours every day in her studio, mm -hmm. and now we've got kids in sports, and of course, all four of them, I sometimes think I've shot myself in the foot, all four of them are passionate about hunting. Mm -hmm. So it's not like I've got one out of the four that kind of likes to go with me. Anytime there's an opportunity, they all want to go. And so I'm busy there. But the podcast then 
has created additional demands on my time. And I've, I generally figure about 12 to 20 hours to create an episode because mm-hmm. I do all my own editing mm-hmm. and uh, publishing and, of course, creating an outline and so forth. And so I've had to plug that workload in with everything else. Yeah. And it's been really fulfilling, especially, interestingly enough, something I didn't expect, the community that's built. Because I, I try, this is another area I may have shot myself in the foot, but I try and answer questions, mm-hmm. whether they come in on Instagram or email or whatnot, I try and answer all the questions I get. And I've made some good friends that mm-hmm. way. And a lot of acquaintances that I stay in touch with and kind of follow their hunting adventures. But the podcast has begun to monetize, and I hope that with continued dedication to it, that it'll continue to grow to a point where it's a significant part of my living yeah you it is there's something about hearing you on the podcast which does seem more accessible i guess probably when you were solely a print journalist people would reach out in writing but it's a little bit more formal it's like one step removed and so it's people are quite negative about the internet and social media but especially moving to a rural place i've met a number a number of like-minded people who have i've developed friendships with mm-hmm. through social media so i think it can be a positive tool when used in the right way and as the old forms of communities sort of erode we need to replace them with something so hopefully it will be that would be a component but not the whole deal yeah you know part of the reason i've i've tried to approach uh, the the interaction with listeners the way i have is years ago geez Probably 20 years ago, I was at a trade show uh, with a friend, and he ran into a celebrity that he'd been following on TV for 10 years. I mean, he'd watched everything this guy had ever produced and felt like he knew him quite well because uh, of of all the time he'd spent watching him. The guy's very approachable on TV Mm -hmm. and a very, very good proponent of the outdoors and so forth. One of my all-time favorite communicators. I'm not going to give a name, but... He ran into him at the trade show and the guy's sitting in his booth and he went up and just said, started trying to strike up a conversation. And I think this celebrity was just exhausted. You know, you probably get to a point when you you achieve a certain notoriety where the onslaught of people wanting to talk to you becomes exhausting. Mm -hmm. And he really blew off my friend. Mm -hmm. And my friend came away thinking, I'm feeling almost like betrayed, right, by a good friend. And I thought, you know what, I never want to do that to anybody. And there are times when I get a really, I hesitate to use the word, but asinine question, you know. (laughs) I take a deep breath and I try and answer it, you know, understanding that maybe that person wasn't trying to come across that way. He just really didn't have a fundamental understanding. Other times I get somebody that sends me a question two or three times a day Mm -hmm. and I'll try and just let them accumulate and then answer a few in a row. All things considered, I've had such good interaction with with listeners. It's been fun. Yeah, uh, it's a a bit like the playground. Like most people get get the social cues, but but, thankfully you're an adult so you can deal with it gently, Uh, not in the playground manner. Okay, interesting. So, so you mentioned uh, raising your kids, and they all love hunting. And this is a as I've sort of followed your your stuff. Your family is part of your podcast and on Instagram. And the the question is, how do we raise children to love 
hunting, the outdoor, hound hunting. Something I've experienced and I've seen in other outdoorsmen and hunters is, is the thing that you're so passionate about, uh, that very passion ends up instantiating in sort of negative uh, negative impulse, you know, you, you want them to like it so much that you become frustrated, angry mm-hmm. and turning them off the thing that you care the most about. And that's a, it's a pitfall fall that I probably, I see the potential in myself and something I want to avoid. And it's something you've done. It's like successfully, uh, was this, was this sort of a conscious approach or just doing your thing? It was. Yeah. Cause I've got family members with, you know, a pretty good size, group of kids themselves that love to hunt that have had limited success like maybe one or two out of five kids catch the bug i've got friends that have experienced the same thing and fundamentally that can just be a personality thing where some kids just aren't interested and that's fine but i wanted to give each of my kids a a chance to experience what I love about outdoors, the outdoors and hunting. And I'd seen these other trends in other families early enough that I kind of did consciously tailor my approach with my kids. First, I do travel a lot, what with my job as an outdoor uh, shooting and hunting writer for Peterson's Hunting, Shooting Time, several other magazines. And so I tried to always... um, involve my kids in stories when I got back. So that kind of ignited a little bit of an internal fire before they were ever legally able to. And then when they did come of legal age, you know, I was living in Utah at the time when my daughter who was eight and my little boy, William, who he actually hosts our Backcountry Apprentice segment on the podcast. He was six, very accomplished reader at the time. He took Utah's online hunter education course and passed it himself at the age of six. Mm-hmm. And then he went and got his hunter education card. And I was allowed to sit with him and, and give him definitions of words like ecological conservation management. Mike, a little six-year-old might go, mm-hmm. wait a minute. Or, or a <laughs> but I was thoughts. yeah, yeah. But I was never, you know, I couldn't give him answers. And I didn't have to. He passed all on his own with flying colors. His sister at the age of eight nearly aced her test. I think she missed one question. So, you know, they were interested and I I supported them in their studies, but I never pushed them into it. And then when when we did go on their first hunts, I tried to pick something that was simple and easy with a high percentage of success. And I think that's important because a, a kid doesn't do well if he's cold and exhausted and unsuccessful for six or eight days in a row. Mm-hmm. Pretty quick, they caught on to the idea that hunting isn't fun. Right. It's yeah. too much work and you're going to be miserable. That will screw a kid up. It'll pretty well douse that small flame of interest, right? Mm-hmm. So I would do simple things. You know, My son William shot a, a turkey when he was seven. And uh, he actually worked hard for it, but we were into him every day. So we always had that interaction with them. Uh, we went dove hunting and I'm no, uh, I'm not stuck up about how kids shoot birds as long as it's legal. You know, if they want to shoot one off a branch, I'll set up shooting sticks and give them a little 410 and they can stock it like a big game animal mm-hmm. as long as it's legal. And like with turkeys too, you know, pheasants shooting them on the ground. Mm-hmm. 
I'll try and explain the sportsmanship and ethics side of it, but say, look, in, you know, if taking your first pheasant is a big deal. And as long as you do it legally, I'm okay with whatever method you use. But as you grow up and you mature and your shooting technique evolves, then I'm going to expect you to start hunting you know, behind our dog with uh, you know, a wing shooting attitude where you're flushing the birds and taking these wild pheasants on the wing. And they really thrive on that because it gives them a step, you know, a series of achievements. I remember the first time my wife came with us uh, dove hunting and we had, funny enough, we'd found an old structure of telephone poles that had been built into a platform for some reason and then abandoned. And it was along a little lake uh, on public ground and doves tended to land there in the evening and just hang out in the sun for 10 minutes before they went off to the roost. So we went down and I taught my kids how to build a little blind out of sagebrush or hide, you know. We got in there and we hunkered down with the dog and the kids had little shooting sticks. They were too little. I mean, they were six and, and a petite eight-year-old girl, right? Mm -hmm. They couldn't swing a shotgun, mm -hmm. at least not safely and, and with uh, effect. And so we'd wait till a dove came and they'd shoot it off that platform and each of them got i don't know three or four over the fall doing that and each bird was a big deal it's not like we're doing high volume dove shooting right 100 percent legal effective and they got to watch the dog go dashing out through the sagebrush and find the bird and bring it back and experience the joy of success and then we'd go home we'd take that bird apart right there and we'd do uh you know jalapeno poppers on the grill that night which is hard to go wrong there and so they got to eat the 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 result of their efforts. So as I started to say, I took my wife along on one of these, and as we're approaching our little blind, a bird came and landed up there, a dove did. And Audrey, who of course was eight at the time, was carrying our little it was a it's a Mossberg uh, youth shotgun, tiny, right? In 410. She loaded it like a pro silently, and I set up the shooting sticks, and she went on there, just flowed onto it like a pro and knocked that bird down. My wife was standing back about 20 yards with her jaw dropped. She's like, oh, my gosh, she is, like, good at this. And I said, you know what? They really generate some skills, some safe handling practices, which has been a very profound part of my teaching to them. And, yeah, she's good at it. It was a pretty fulfilling moment for all of us. Mm -hmm. We're not completely dissimilar for, from dogs in that we're sort of the summation of our positive and negative experiences. And sure. they, tend to, they tend to form feedback loops. So you develop that positive feedback loop and it just gets bigger. You know, she's now she's shooting the dove and it's this enormous reward, right? Yeah, uh, yeah that's cool. Uh, I'm thinking about what you said about Louis L'Amour and... I think stories are vital to our understanding of the world, but also the like our projection of ourselves into the future. And the it's it makes me happy to hear that you fed them on stories and they grew grew into it. Uh, you have spent a lot of time outdoors alone, you know, or in places which are sort of without culture, and that culture is a product of civilization. And but it's clear that you orientate your life. Uh, and your pursuits in the outdoors with values. And I, I, I'm still a shooter off the ground bird hunter and that I'm not a bird hunter at all. I grew up in the UK and I, I used to, I had a BB gun, like an air rifle. And I used to take the train out to the countryside and stay with friends from the city. 
And we would poach, uh, me and my, you know, 10 year old friends would poach pheasants on the edges of these estates where they raise, mm-hmm. you know, 10,000 pheasants. And we'd, the BB gun would never kill the pheasant. You know, you shoot, <laughs> you shoot it with the BB gun and then you run and you stomp, you know, uh, we call it shoot, sprint, stomp. Uh, but so I'm not, uh, I'm not above, you know, I'm, I'm far below that. I'm, uh, but there is a certain value that you seem to, try to bring to your hunting and your approach to the outdoors. How do you build a, a culture? How do you take a culture of something into solitude? And how do you build a culture which around uh, much of an experience, much of which time is spent alone? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I understand what you're getting at. Um, you know, there may not be a, a civil, like a societal culture in the back country, and especially when you're solo back there. But there is an inherent um, ambiance, if I can use that word, I guess. Uh, whether you're doing a cold camp and being as low impact as possible and living among the animals you're hunting, or you have a nice campfire and you've set up a you know a wall tent with a little stove in it, there's a- an automatic uh, feel and lifestyle uh, there within your efforts and the culture itself the the depth of the experience often depends a lot on the place you're in and your attitude about it and i've been in everything from the most inspiring solo hunt experiences to some that literally tear your moral fiber apart and you sometimes feel like a caged animal right and you have to deal with yourself days on end until you get picked up by that bush plane or whatever. Try and find a way to be productive and uh, you know, mentally stay as human as possible. Mm-hmm. And the backcountry strips away a lot of layers mm-hmm. in yourself when you're out there. And I think that's often why it's, at least in the beginning, if you're just getting into it, it's best to go with a friend because that friend can help put patches on where the wrong layers get stripped off. Mm-hmm. And can help um, you know keep uh, a positive attitude. A good hunting partner will subconsciously recognize when you're struggling and will lift you. And you do the same for them. You know, a really good hunting partnership is hard to find. Very valuable when you do find it. When you're alone, does bringing culture to that solitude in the wilderness does that help deal with with the difficulties of it? It can. Yeah. So. I always try and take a good book. And um, I'm a religious man, so I'll have several books of scripture downloaded onto my phone as well. And as long as my phone hasn't died, I can go to those. But I try and bring a good book that's got literary quality uh, and is a, a captivating read on a subject that provokes out of the box thoughts. So this last trip, this moose hunt, drop camp hunt I did with my friend Joe Kennedy, I took a book called West with the Night. And Hemingway wrote about it that she's such a good, the author was such a good writer that it made him feel like he shouldn't even be writing, Mm -hmm. right? And it's about a young woman who grew up uh, in Africa. She was, uh, I believe she was also British by birth, but grew up in Africa. And her father lost everything when she was in her late teens. She became a racehorse trainer. And then a uh, airplane scout and emergency 
supplies runner. She got her own plane. She would fly through the night when nobody flew at night back then. This is like early 1900s and deliver medical supplies to save people from dying. She would fly scouting missions for safaris and find the herds of buffalo and elephant and so forth, all solo out in brutal country. And she documented it all with incredible literary capability. And so that sort of book I try and take with me. And and then when I'm sitting on a ridge overlooking a vast canyon in Alaska or here in Idaho or wherever the case may be, and things are slow, I'll read a chapter or two. And that prompts thoughts that, in a funny way, bring it all together because I'm out there trying to get someplace where I'm not going to see anybody else, where I'm going to experience a type of solitude and challenge that you don't get where other people are readily available to help you or get in your way. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. It's it's a, it's a beautiful thing being in the backcountry if you're well-prepared and have the right mindset. Horses are another thing. If you're a horse person, that's companionship and uh, you know, a proper mechanical advantage if you start hauling an elk out or whatnot. Uh, and yet you're caring for them. You know, they become a friend and a burden on you as you hunt. M.C. Escher, who was this artist, most of the audience probably knows his pictures are sort of these convoluted and impossible to believe geometric uh, drawings. He wrote, I'm walking around all alone in this splendid garden that does not belong to me, and the gate of which stands wide open for anyone. I dwell here in refreshing but also oppressive loneliness. That is why I've been attesting to the existence of this idyllic spot for years without expecting many strollers to come, however. And I think it's that that phrase, refreshing but oppressive loneliness, has stuck with me. A couple of years ago, I, you did that series where you were hunting moose alone. And I guess this last year you went with a friend, but was yeah. it two years ago you went caribou. with? Mm-hmm. Oh, caribou, sorry. Uh, and I, I listened to the series at, on my phone, which I downloaded as I was... Uh, alone on my first solo big game hunt, oh, and cool. I and I found the solitude really taxing. Mm-hmm. Uh, not you know it's not it's not being tired from the tent you know sleeping out or cold and wet. It's it's like uh, I I really found the the psychological component the most difficult, uh, and it's not something that I think most people talk about. There is that amazing feeling where you're out and the risk is real, and you're not you know you're in a place where there are no other people. But I think it's that that contradiction of refreshing but oppressive loneliness. Could you tell us about your experiences with that feeling and sort of learning? I think because we don't want to get rid of it, right? I think it's le- how do you learn to live with it in a positive way? You know, the most alive I've ever felt is when I'm solo in the backcountry. And the more remote that backcountry is, the more alive you feel because it becomes more and more raw. And the reality that if you screw up, you'll probably die becomes more and more substantial or potentially die, right? And um, that particular experience you, you alluded to there two years ago, caribou hunt, I was dropped above timberline for I think it was eight days, seven or eight days, by a bush plane, and got a caribou the night the night of my second day there. Had it hauled all, all hauled out by the end of the third day, kind of screwed up and got um, 
exhausted that day. I pushed myself a little too hard and didn't eat for lunch. And so by the time I got back to the tent right before dark, a huge rainstorm was coming in, lots of wind, and I was so tired I was no longer hungry and didn't want to eat. And I I think I was borderline hypothermic at that point, right? Mm. But I forced myself to make a hot meal, a hot mountain house meal, and get it into my body because I, I knew the signs abstractly that I was kind of in trouble, right? Got the food in me, got into my sleeping bag, and it took me about three hours to get warm. And then that storm lasted about four days. Had a couple of brief windows when the wind let up and the rain let up, but my uh, electronic devices all basically quit on me. My solar charger went belly up. My phone was almost out of battery, and so I couldn't read on it. I couldn't watch the films I downloaded to it. Usually I don't like to watch films in the backcountry, but if you're in a tent day after day with apocalyptic levels of rain and wind going on outside of you, uh, your mind gets real bored, especially being a productive uh, person. You know, I'm, I always want to be productive. It's something that I think the, the, the sort of abstract purist who hasn't gone, you know, the, the, the non-hunter who hasn't gone out or non-outdoors person who hasn't gone out and spent that time locked down. Why would you listen to a podcast? You know, enjoy your Aldo Leopold solitude. But uh, it is a it's a real thing when you're out there and like it, it helps to make it, you know, have a more positive, be able to enjoy it more and be more positive. about it. Yeah. The, I'm I'm like that as well. And I think probably most most hunters are probably like that where we like to be productive. And the when you were describing that being locked down in the tent for days, I was like, at least you had the podcast to think about and material to make because yeah. it, it, I would be miserable. I did. I recorded a lot because I, I take a, a little handheld recorder with me when I go on these trips and I try and record five to 15 minutes a day. I was recording a couple hours a day <laughs> in there just for something to do. But the productivity is really key to hunting solo. I love hunting solo, whether it's just a long day on your own where you leave camp, you know, an hour before daylight, bid your hunting friends uh, good luck, and you're on your own through the entire day in six inches of snow, glassing for elk and tracking, trying to find a big bull track. And, and then you come back in the dark and either there's a big campfire waiting or you build one and you sit around it and you share the day's stories with your friends. Uh, just a solo hunt through a day is probably my favorite way to hunt. Uh, then a step deeper is where you go out on your own, but in complete control of what your tasks are, where you're hunting, and when you come back. So this is on your horses with a backpack going from a trailhead, even truck camping on your own, you know, somewhere several hours from home. I enjoy that quite a bit because you can strategize. You can go into an area and hunt it hard for a couple of days. And if you're not seeing what you want to see, you can answer that call of the wild and that inherent thing within us that always wants to see around the next corner, into the next canyon, right? And you can move. You can go out to your truck and drive to another area. You can get on your horse and ride through a couple of different drainages or put on your backpack and move. And then when you're done, whatever that means, you can come out at your own discretion. A drop camp hunt is the deepest most challenging type of solo hunt because you're in one spot, right? 
and you don't get to come out until the pilot comes for you. And often weather will delay that as well. And you can't do a thing about it. And the, the more you throw a fit about it, the worse it becomes because the pilot gets grumpy about it and, uh, you know, just spirals. The more you dwell on it and, and get all full of angst about it, the worse you feel about it. So being productive is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, it's a good I mean, it's you, it's an extreme lesson, which you then take back to this world, the world of men and other things. And, you, you know, I think it probably gives good context for, uh, you know, not, not, not allowing yourself to develop those negative circles of angst and frustration because at the end of the day, they aren't useful and they sort of implode. Uh, yeah. So, so one, one thing I've noticed as I've sort of been, gotten a little bit older and when I was 18 and I left the house, I had nothing bringing me home. Like I didn't have to go home for, you know, wherever my home was, it wasn't much. It was just like a bed. Uh, and the more, the more you have familial relationships and things which you give you joy in life, it's sort of a, a unfortunate or difficult contradiction. The more I have felt the pull of like when I'm out for days at a time alone. Oh, and I imagine with kids, this is sort of exponential. Uh, how, how do you balance that dynamic of uh, the need to be out there, but also and, and also the the need to develop, you know, a, a positive home life. But the, the I, I've got friends sort of who are uh, very fearful of developing any sort of home life because it's going to pull them out of the field. And how do you balance those things? Because I, I think ideally we all want to have both. Yeah. You know, I think I'm blessed there in a way that very few uh, serious hunters are who, because I make my living writing about my experiences and, and now podcasting about my experiences. And if I didn't have those experiences, I would be lacking material with which to make a living, right? So my wife's always been very supportive. It's hard on the family, but I do have that. It's not even an excuse. It's simply a fact about my life that if I'm not going and doing things, my work's going to suffer. And as the kids have gotten older and, and they're in sports now and they all want to hunt and so forth, and they, they become more cognizant of the fact that you're leaving them for six nights or whatever it is, and you start feeling that more and more. You know, it's. I think it's... Um, there are a few things that can really help uh, folks that are struggling with this, this dynamic, this contradictory set of desires to be home and yet to be out hunting. One is make sure you're financially responsible about it. Uh, work hard, put aside money for your adventures, and make sure your family is getting an equal um, amount of attention and financial attention as well. I know, I know, I have friends that have pulled big chunks of money out of the family budget to go out on an adventure and created a, you know, a scar in their marital relationship that, that's always going to be there. That's not smart. So just work a little harder, take a side job, whatever, make sure you dedicate time to your family so that from their perspective, you're still doing the right thing. And then if you have kids, it's, it always makes things better if you can take one of them with you. As soon as one of your kids is old enough and interested enough to go do those adventures, start taking them with you because then your spouse is um, actually appreciative of the fact that you're out there and you're giving that 
young person a, an experience that they wouldn't get any other way. As far as leaving on your own and just being out there and missing your family, yeah, that happens. Every time I come back from one of the really long, deep backcountry adventures, I appreciate my wife a lot more. I'm a lot more tolerant of my kids because for a while, I feel like all the chatter and noise and neediness and all that is, is just wonderful because I'm back in it. I'm basking in it, right? Mm -hmm. Crawling into bed at night on a real mattress beside a warm body that loves you is such a blessed thing after sleeping for 12 days on a little pad on rocks, right? Oh, yeah. I think it's important sometimes to try and remember those things, hold on to them, because all too quickly, speaking for myself, that fades and I'm just, you know, the old grump again. <laughs> yeah. 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 You walk down the same street a thousand times, you stop seeing it, but I think when you have sort of testing experiences, it can return the stone to stoniness. And yeah. that's something people sort of become addicted to substances or to travel because when you, because it, it's your, but, but I think the, the experiences that you pay the most for are usually the most honest and pure returning to feeling and sensation. And uh, I think we all sort of hunger for that. It's a, it's a terrible idea to not to go through life without seeing the world. So yeah. when we go out and then return and have a whole new site on the, sometimes it's a, sometimes it's like, Oh wow. Now that I, now that I come out and I see this thing, I've returned to more clearly, I got to change some things here, but it's still good to see. Yeah. Oh, and I've had my wife tell me a few times after coming back from one of these things, she'll wait a few days to see if it sticks. And then she'll say, you know what? You've changed. I like it. It's <laughs> <laughs> good to hear. Yeah. One of the questions I have is, you used to live in Utah. Mm -hmm. uh, born and raised in Utah? I was down in the southern part of the state, which is a, a much different place than the population centers in Utah Valley and Salt Lake County. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why, why did you move to Idaho? Well, mm, Utah's getting too crowded. Too many people, hunting opportunity is becoming way harder to uh, access. And I don't mean by like literal access, but just even getting a permit. So when I was a kid, you could go as a 14 year old and buy an archery permit for mule deer. And if you didn't get one during you know the, the four weeks of archery season, you just go back to the gas station, buy a rifle permit. If you didn't get one during the rifle season, you could go to the gas station, buy a muzzleloader permit all over the counter, right? At that point, I remember, I don't remember the year, but I remember distinctly when the state of Utah hit a million people, right? As kind of this big milestone everybody's chattering about. Well, we're now, we, the state of Utah is well over 3 million people. Mm -hmm. And I moved to LA for two years when I first took a full-time editing job and then was relocated for four years to Illinois. Didn't want to raise my kids out there. So that's when I transitioned to writing full-time. We moved back to central Utah. And with all the traveling I do, I was commuting in about an hour and a half north to the Salt Lake City Airport regularly. And that corridor going up I-15 is horrible. Uh, there's always construction. There were, uh, the roads were bad. They were always crowded. And it was a very stressful experience for me. And I just didn't like it. Plus the pollution in those valleys is horrible. And simultaneously, the, the hunting opportunity there 
I don't want to talk bad about my native state, right? Mm. But lots of people that want to hunt and lots of encroachment on uh, traditional wintering grounds by new neighborhoods and subdivisions. A couple of really bad winter kills over the past uh, seven or eight years now. It got to the point where to draw a general season deer tag in southern Utah where I grew up took about five years. And you had to choose your season. You couldn't hunt all three anymore. Unless you got into the dedicated hunter program or some other things like that. But it got so hard to to even just obtain a tag, an allegedly general season tag. The point creep for the limited entry, you know, the special draw tags for big bull elk and, and bison and bighorn sheep and things like that had outgrown, they've grown to the point now where I'm not even putting my kids in for them because those kids will go their lifetime putting in with the system as it currently is and never have a, a reasonable chance of drawing. It's You're throwing away good money now. So mm-hmm. I was tired of the people, the hard commute, the smog. The type of people the, or the quantity? The quantity and mm, the type was fine. I mean, Utah's full of good people. There's a lot of great people there. And I've got very good friends. We were really close to our neighbors where I left, but it was a quantity of people. Yeah. And, mm, you know, there were a, a variety of aspects, but I'd, I've got roots in Idaho as well. Uh, some distant family roots. I went to school here for a while and just felt like the right place to go. I looked in Western Wyoming a lot. That's what, that was our initial destination. But then we transitioned to Idaho. Too cool. Yeah. Too cold, too windy. Yeah, it can be. Yeah, but the hunting opportunities are fantastic. Really? Yeah. So I, I, I don't use that question to be negative about Utah. I think it's so that we can sort of like critically reflect. Sure. Are, are those are those changes occurring uh, primarily because as the population has gone up, there's more hunting pressure and competition for opportunity? Or do you feel like it's because uh, natural spaces are impacted by... I mean, it's obviously a combination of both, but uh, what do you attribute it primarily to sort of the growth of urban areas or? It's both. So, And, and there's a third factor in there, which is uh, funny enough, something I contribute to with the podcast. And that's the trendiness and the current popularity of the backcountry hunting lifestyle. Mm. So uh, to start at the beginning, yeah, the, the population is like tripled. And so there are a lot more people that want those permits. Winter range is a, an area that's particularly been hit hard. Where my house was in South Utah County down there was traditional mule deer wintering range. And I recognize that. When I bought that house, there were four homes on that big long ridge. When we left, there were over 900 Whoa. seven years later. That tells you how the population is booming there. Half my neighbors commuted north into the Salt Lake Valley for work. They didn't want to live in the Salt Lake Valley, but they um, needed to be close enough. And more and more people were driving an hour to work. You know, that's so much of your life lost, an hour going, an hour coming. And then, of course, concurrently, there's podcasts, there's social media, there's TV, all these various factors that are driving people to hunt. And it's a beautiful thing in the fact that people are more informed and more capable than ever before. And my brother 
coined a, a term, Navy SEAL hunters. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> it's kind of apt because when I was a kid, if you got a mile and a half off the road, you didn't see anybody except maybe a cowboy with a Winchester 3030 on their saddle as they worked cattle five or six miles back in. And maybe they're going to see a big buck or an elk or something and shoot it meanwhile. But now you go five miles off the road and all you find is more trail cameras and more people because it's become trendy to do that. Mm. Uh, in fact, there's now this, you know, some people have a term for it, like a middle ground or whatever, or the missed space where people are saying, all right, well, you, you either hunt within a half mile of the road or five miles back. Those are the high impact areas. If you can get a mile and a half to two and a half miles off, there's this belt of ignored <laughs> country. Yeah. So strategies are evolving, yeah. you know. I hate the feeling of competition, though. It takes a lot of the oh, fun out of it. Oh, it's so me. hard when the pressure is skyrocketing and the people hunting are very effective. We've got long range rifles, better optics than ever before, ammunition that's more effective at greater distances than ever before, and mapping, you know, uh, electronic mapping functions that allow us to get in there and drop waypoints and project waypoints and do things. They're all fantastic tools, but they create a level of pressure and competition that's very hard to keep up with. Yeah. And as you age like me, I mean, I'm bona fide middle age now. You get a lot slower. You recover less quickly after an extremely hard day of packing meat. It's harder to compete with, you know, a 30-year-old hunter that's in great shape, that's single, and that has all the tools and resources and really knows how to use them. That guy's going to outhunt me mm -hmm. now unless I can out-strategize him, be a little bit smarter. Uh -huh. But, so, you, but I think I think for me, hunting is about competition with the game. And at a certain point, it's a literal uh, expression of supremacy over another animal, which I, I don't mean it in any sort of malevolent way. And that there's the utmost respect for this other animal, but no animal wants to die. And so you are expressing your superiority with the tools that we have, which give us an advantage. But sure. Uh, I, I for me, it's I, I, I just really uh, move uh, move away from competition because it's obviously oh what a what a luxury to be able to move away from competition but it's it's such a turnoff for me i don't want to be competing with other hunters and and thinking about how the elk are going to move because of the pressure i want to right. be hunting wild animals you know uh which is one reason alaska is so fantastic if you can get deep away from everybody else you hunt game that may have never seen another human you can count on nobody else shooting and, and messing up your stock, you know. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's that was a big reason I moved to Idaho is to get away from some of the, the pressure and competition. I think sometimes I didn't move far enough into Idaho. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if I'd have gone right into central Idaho, you know, then it's it's a long drive for anybody from out of state wanting to come and As pressure your area. Living close to there, it's also a long drive to go anywhere and yeah and you're really once you're in the mountains you can't see the mountains so oh wow you brought up a number of really good things uh <laughs> both something i want to get to about sort of uh the opportunity provided to us by gear and how we're going to manage that but uh well and these are all interlinked i guess but on a societal social level uh what's idaho is experiencing you know tremendous growth it's not it wasn't as populated as utah to start with so it's sort of uh, how, what is the future for the hunting public in a 
you know, there's all this controversy about recruitment and is, all, is you know, is huge recruitment the goal? I sort of think it's not. Uh, recruitment is good, but I think better marketing by hunters and better outreach to non-hunters with the intent not to convert them to being hunters, but to convert them to the causes is sort of the way. But uh, how, give us your social program for how do we how do we stop Idaho becoming like Utah and how do we how do we retain a balance where uh, we can still have the wild spaces in populated? Well, Utah is still relatively unpopulated compared to most states in the country, right? And most states in this country are a hell of a lot less populated than Bangladesh. So we're sure. still living in, you know, a good place. But uh, And Utah still is a good place. Um, the trouble is Utah doesn't support a, a high enough population and game for everybody that wants to hunt. Idaho currently is doing a little better on that front. And as I understand it, my numbers, just they'll be close, not perfect, but I think Idaho has about 1.6 million people. So we have half the number of people that uh, Utah does. And we have the most like true wilderness country of any state south of uh, Alaska. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of big country and people that want to get away from other hunters and pressure as long as they're willing to undergo the brutal effort to do so, they can do so. And that opportunity is going to stay, I think, for a long time. As far as hunter recruitment, that's a double-edged sword. As you kind of mentioned there, the more hunters we recruit, especially with our, our booming human population, you know, if you have, let's call it 3% of the, the hunters hunting, as the population increases, naturally the the that three percent number is going to be greater right so do we want to do that do we have to do that the argument posed by people that are proponents for a lot of hunter recruitment is usually based on voting to protect our rights as hunters we're going to need a substantial enough voting base to um, preserve the laws that um, and regulations that guarantee our privileges to hunt. I like what you said though about maybe being ambassadors of the lifestyle, changing perception uh, either instead of or additionally to recruiting because if you can change the perception of non-hunting public in general, let's say you can just change 15%. It's not a huge number, but it's a lot more than you're probably ever going to convert to uh, you know, a true hunting lifestyle. Yeah. And maybe you can either gain those, those votes to protect our rights that way, or at least uh, make enough people uh, that aren't gonna vote against you to protect it. It is a very challenging concept moving forward, how to deal with this. Uh, personally, I mean, I've <laughs> there's one of me and I've got four little ones that are gonna fill that that space. And I look ahead and I think, okay, well, is the territory I hunt and occupy going to be enough for all four of them through their lives? And I'm a pretty adventurous guy. So I think so. You know, they can all play nice and share that space. But uh, yeah. That's abnormal though in the U.S. population in that now sort of U.S. citizens, our population is stable and declining. And with immigration, it's still net positive. Uh, Depends on the state and the region, of course. Oh, oh, yeah, no, locally, sort of the West is experiencing this enormous boom. It feels like 
But I, I guess I'm trying to be optimistic and hope that sure because we natural spaces. You know, once a, something becomes a parking lot, it's hard for it to go back to being a natural space. So yeah, hopefully we retain it. Uh, it is an interesting dynamic. I I was reading through a bunch of comments uh, on some Instagram thread yesterday and. It caught my eye where this reader responded to another person who had commented and said, holy smokes, you only have three weeks of deer season? Mm-hmm. And well, we get 10 days, two weeks. <laughs> and then the person that responded is like, yeah, I mean, sometimes it sucks. And, the, and then the, other, the first guy says, yeah, down here, somewhere in the south, he said, our hundred numbers are way down, deer are way up. We can hunt from... I think it was like September 1st to uh, January 15th. Uh, and take X deers. number of bucks <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and so many does. And that gives some perspective. You know, and that's the opposite of the, the issue in Utah, uh, where you've got so much opportunity and very few people taking advantage of it. Mm-hmm. So very much on a regional basis across the nation as well. Mm-hmm. Although they might be killing 15 deer in their four-month season, but it's only on 10 acres and you might kill zero deer on 150 acres. So the questions come into my head and go straight out. (laughs) (laughs) I know that feeling. (laughs) So you, you did a interesting podcast yesterday with a guy from Gunworks, which was focused sort of on long range shooting. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that I could sum up what uh, I, it was complicated and hard to track. And I, but I, I got the impression that it was advocating for both using match bullets and is that right or and all uh but but also sort of extending our ideas of what is ethical uh in terms of long-range shooting and he he talked about his son shooting his first bull elk at 1400 yards nearly yeah and yeah nearly 1400 yards and i was sort of blown away by this and it's how do we balance this extend you know you know the ever-expanding technological ability giving us you know, greater and greater ability to kill things. Not for me, <laughs> but yeah. for, for people who are able to use it properly, I, I'm not capable. Uh, but with, it seems like a necessary corollary is that there's going to be decreased opportunity as these things increase. And as a community, do we ever have to take a stance and begin self reg There are types of self-regulation. It feels like the hunting community can't self-regulate at the speed that technology develops, but this isn't my wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a real can of worms. And I'm, I'm kind of glad you brought it up. Uh, there are some state regulations that are starting to take note and, and regulate things such as trail cameras and some levels of technology. In that rifle world, uh, it's, it's funny. You know, I had a conversation earlier this week about a friend about how Idaho used to be a, a destination for giant mule deer bucks. People would come from all over and they'd drive out in the 60s and 70s and early 80s. You could buy two mule deer buck tags over the counter and they'd go and you can find pictures in in books and old auto shops and whatnot of giant bucks these guys are pulling out. And this friend and I were talking about, okay, well, what are the reasons, some of the reasons that we don't have these now? I mean, it's there's so many various factors but one of them was the long range rifles and the laser range finders and all all that and we kind of both joked and then sobered up and said very you know with commitment that yeah if we could 
do it. We'd say, all right, lever action 3030s with iron sights only across the whole state. Yeah. Everybody would have lots of opportunity, plenty of time in the field. Very few people would shoot deer. <laughs> but those big bucks would come back. And for the people that wanted to really work on their uh, true hunting skills, They'd, they'd shoot deer every year and, and they'd eventually start bringing home some of those tremendous eight and nine year old deer that we just don't see anymore, right? I'm not sure that very few, few people would shoot deer. I think our expectation, certainly we'd have to work harder and develop more skills. But with a 1300 yard shot, like I, I'm, I'm hesitant to restrict what other people can do because I don't want my own stuff to be restricted. But I do, do think there has to be a line drawn where like, first of all, the uh, anti-hunters see that and they it's a very easy case for them to make that this yeah. is not fair chase and it's no one's romantic idea of hunting to kill an animal from you know 1300 yards i'll actually differ with you there so we all humans are humans and every one of us is individual right so some of us believe or know that we get the the greatest fulfillment from stalking close enough to see the whites of their eyes and the steam coming off a bull elk when he bugles and shoot them with a longbow, right? Others, their passion is more engineering and mechanical oriented in their mind. And making a very precise ethical shot at a very long distance is where it's at for those guys. So from my perspective, I've always felt like I wanna be the best hunter I can so I don't have to take long shots. And at the same time, the best rifleman I can so that if I have to take a long shot, I can do so ethically. And if I have to help clean up after a friend has made a mistake and a poor hit, I can help him with that, even if it's 800, 900, 1,000 yards or more. So I work very hard on both those skills to try and become a very good hunter and a very good rifleman. I've always been a proponent of tough controlled expansion bullets. Like The bullet is so important that the specific projectile is the only true connecting factor between you and your quarry, right? Mm -hmm. Your rifle's the launching pad, very important. Your skills, your riflemanship, your marksmanship, that's the driver behind the whole package. But the only thing that literally connects you with your game is your bullet. And I've always believed in using the best bullet I can to give me the most ethical uh, capability at any shot angle. And there are some modern designated hunting bullets that are really good at that. The reason I brought Aaron Davidson on, he's the founder and owner of Gunworks, which is the driving factor in precision or long range hunting today. Right? Their company has been the biggest ambassadors, the best, biggest educators in that field for over a decade. Very admirably good at what they do. The reason I brought Aaron on is because I don't know anybody with his amount of experience in that realm. And I wanted to bring his opinions and ex expertise, which are often candidly opposing to my own, yeah. onto the show and just hear him out. That's why I didn't debate him on any, any of those topics. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to hear what's worked for him. Mm -hmm. When somebody tells you they've either taken or seen taken, like been right there over the shoulder of the shooter, helping them out with wind calls and stuff, more than 500 animals taken at long range with a given bullet, that is a level of expertise you cannot debate, right? There's too much data and evidence and experience there. Now, I still you know, disagree with uh, what 
he would use inside, let's call it three or 400 yards. I think they're bullets that are way better than a target type bullet for use at closer range. But his lifelong goal has been to extend his lethal ethical capability at extreme distances, right? Mm. That's what, that's the way he's wired. That's his primary motivation. He gets so much fulfillment out of it. Where the danger comes in is promoting that to people who just want to kill more stuff and they're not willing to go through the candidly very arduous steps to achieve ethical levels of lethality at those distances. I've seen a lot of guys with a $10,000 shooting rig shoot at something at six and 700 yards and hit it poorly. Mm -hmm. You've got to live, breathe, eat, and dream long-range shooting on all levels, not just a game, to be, you know, to actually go into that and, and have some ethics in your method. Yeah, no, something that uh, I think a point that you've consistently made in your podcast is that if your passion is long-range shooting, then it's, you know, ethical and viable to shoot things at distance. And I totally buy that. The only thing is that my experience with people shooting out to, there's sort of been a normalization of shooting at what I consider extreme distance. And they go, oh, Kyle, well, you can't shoot for shit. Well, that's why it's extreme distance. But even so, you know, I think when you're getting out past 500 yards to a thousand yards, that's far. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, it's so far that you, you're oftentimes shooting with very little chance for the animal to know that you're there. Uh, it's, th- that's, that's okay. But uh, I, most of the people I've met who have who are shooting at those distances are not people who have devoted their life to long range shooting. They're people who sort of have this normalized expectation that 500 to a thousand yards is doable. Cause I've got this, you know, sub MOA rifle and, and oh, then they, yeah. and then they go and they're shooting, you know, 15 shots. And I, uh, yeah, so it's, it's a, it's a tricky thing. Uh, at a certain point we do have to limit things. For instance, if I told you, my, I love drones, like drones are my passion. And there's nothing I like more than putting some explosive on a drone and expertly uh, flying that drone a mile and a half and crashing it into a bull elk uh, and harvesting that bull elk. You know, we, we, we both <laughs> sort of accept that that's not okay, right? Yeah. Uh, we, there is a place for the larger community to put limits on things. And I, I think it's an ongoing conversation about what those limits are. It seems like the conversation perhaps doesn't move fast enough for the uh, advances in technology. Yeah, technology is evolving right now so fast. I don't think our intellects and our ethics can keep up. That's an unfortunate thing. I, I like something you said several minutes ago about you don't like regulating anybody else's choices, right? So I think this is something I've tried to do through my podcast and my writing and whatever small amount of influence I have on the hunting public is to try and instill a sense of personal responsibility because it's so easy for a chap to, you know, run down to the local gun shop and drop 3000 bucks on a really nice rifle. that's going to shoot tiny groups and 2000 bucks on top end scope and then buy a case of this really good precision hunting ammunition and put it all together and fire up his ballistic app and go shoot some rocks out to 1200 yards and then say, I'm ready. Mm -hmm. And they go out and they'll find a big buck across a canyon, eight or 900 yards away. And 
go to shooting. And like you say, sometimes 15 shots later, they get the job done. And that's not okay. Um, where do we go with this? How do we help people understand this? You, there's so many factors. When you see that buck, your heart rate is going to jump through the sky, right? You're going to have massive quantities of adrenaline dumped onto your brain from excitement. You're probably already at high elevation and fatigued from pushing to try and get to a shooting position. So your musc muscles are stressed and trembling. Your focus is suffering because of uh, reduced oxygen reaching your brain. So, And there may be a rapidly closing window of opportunity. So all these factors just compress and they tend to, as I like to sometimes say, they, they let the puppy in the back of your brain drive mm. and you make some poor decisions sometimes. I think what we have to do is, is help people first understand that just, just because you have a scope with a dial on it and some expensive ammunition and an expensive rifle doesn't mean you have the right to try and see if you can make that rifle do what it can do. You have to know before you ever take on an endeavor like that, that you are capable of using that rifle to its full potential. How do you do that? Hundreds of rounds downrange, and not just at a shooting range off a bench, but this is something you can't do in the East or the Midwest unless you own a big piece of property. But here in the West where we've got public ground, you can get out and you can hike trails somewhere not with a lot of people, right? Because you don't want to bother folks, but hike trails, glass up rocks at distance, and shoot in varying wind conditions, in weird positions, at extreme angles. Literally hundreds and hundreds of rounds should go through your rifle doing that before you ever take a shot at a live animal. And then you have to have an idea of what your maximum capability is. And this is just my personal experience, but I believe that every 200 yards, once you get past 600, doubles the difficulty of that shot. So an 800 yard shot, in my experience, on a, let's say a, a deer's vital size area, at least twice as hard as a 600 yard shot. And then a thousand yard shot is at least twice as hard as a 800 yard shot. So it's an exponentially more challenging effort. And candidly, most folks should never attempt it. And, and how do we how do we sort of pass down that knowledge and that, that system of values? And I think it's what you're saying about Louis L'Amour. Your values are to some extent uh, grown out of the culture that produced you. And, may, and you're now playing a role in creating the current culture. And it, it seems hard for that culture to keep up, but I'm also filled with positivity by the fact that these podcasts are growing and having such success in that it's building a new culture in order to inculcate, you know, the values that we now need for uh, ethical hunting and also more than just ethical hunting. Like in order to live, we need to see the world in a valued way. And it's very difficult, growing, you know, uh, being in a world in which values are murky. Yeah. Oh, so difficult. I think it's a wonderful thing that mankind, humans, are optimists in general. And when you see a great big buck and you have a nice rifle, your optimism is often bigger than it should be, right? And you think, he's at 700 yards, but if I don't take this shot, I'm never going to get another chance, right? And so people will lay down, people that have never shot past their 400 yards, and throw a bullet. 
pre-visioning, like envisioning and, and mentally playing that out ahead of time is important to being able to risk, resist that temptation. I've been guilty of it in my younger days. I know a lot of people that are guilty of that. And the size of the potential reward sometimes will make us take substantial risks. And we have to set our ethics in advance before we can expect ourselves to react appropriately in that situation. If we don't have that rule set ahead of time, we're not going to generate it in the moment. Mm. We're too optimistic for that, right? Yes, that's a good point. There's a... An episode from several years back of Meat Eater, wherein Stephen Ranella is laying down prone somewhere here in Idaho, and he's aiming at a big deer. This is a bone and fried Boone and Crockett buck that's 407 yards away. And if memory serves, he doesn't take the shot, and a minute later, talking to the the buck gets away, right? A minute or so later, he's talking to the camera, and he says, my self-imposed maximum distance is 400 yards, and the buck was too far. To me, that was foolish. Seven yards isn't enough to worry about, right? Mm -hmm. He'd have killed that deer just fine. I'm not sure what the point of that exercise was. However, on the plus side, several days later, he ended up shooting a non-typical buck that was even bigger at something like 370 yards, killed it cleanly, right? And so whether you believe in karma or simple hard work or the fact that, you know, if if you really take a hard and fast stance on your ethics, it will eventually reward you. That's all up to you, right? But uh, I do think that if we work hard, we can also cut ourselves a little bit of slack. Mm. Seven yards wouldn't have saved that deer's life. But you understand where he's coming from because seven yard, you know, he's drawn a sort of arbitrary line, but there's a need to stick to it just because seven yards. Well, what if I could shoot at 407? Why not 414 and 421? You know, like, and it, it, there, that slippery slope, but obviously in an organic, it's, it's a great point that you made about sort of setting your, uh, setting your lines beforehand or at least setting your ethical codes before you go into the field. I, I'm a big proponent of sort of deciding things in the present moment. But in this situation, I'm smiling because when I first got here, I started elk hunting and I uh, had the cow tag and I hunted it in the snow for, you know, seven days straight. And on the last day, the final day of the season, I took a 500 yard shot and I'd never shot past 300 yards. And it was a terrible mistake. And I spent three days tracking that elk. And I think it, I think it was okay, but you know, it was just completely foolish and I felt terrible and I didn't have my, my ethics and my rules weren't, uh, weren't prefigured before I went to the field this year. I saw the biggest buck I've ever seen on opening morning and I didn't have my range finder. I left it on the other side of the ridge and, you know, just thinking it's first light. And in that first light, the light is kind of murky. It's hard to judge distance. And I thought, oh, he's far. I don't know. I don't want to take a shot without ranging him. I thought, I'm just going to let him walk off and I'll, I'll go around and find him. I never saw that buck again. But I, I don't feel, you know, sort of a smug about it in that, oh, what a you know moral decision. Uh, I wish I had killed that buck. Uh, and, and in hindsight, having ranged it, I wish I had shot that buck. Yeah. But I'm, I'm, I'm glad that not knowing, I, you know, that in the situation I didn't. You made the right decision. Yeah. So let's talk about 
what should a good hunter be able to achieve, right, with his yeah. rifle? Because we've been throwing around ethics and what's too far and what's, you know. Ground us. Yeah. So what are, just to touch on this for a minute or two, what should we expect of ourselves as hunters now? So one of the great hunters of yesteryear was Jack O'Connor. He was an extremely good rider, very capable rifleman, and he did a lot of shooting to 400 yards and sometimes beyond. But based on his writings and my own experience before rangefinders and dial-up scopes and in just reading, researching, and watching serious hunters of the past, a really good rifleman 30 years ago could pull off a 400-yard shot reliably. Okay, you're making a, a very good range estimate because that was before your laser range finders came around, right? You had to get within 50 yards or so on your estimate, and then you had to know your trajectory and the way your rifle behaved and so forth. Then we got laser range finders. So now we can know within, I mean, even if we're shaky within five or 10 yards of how far our quarry is, even if it's a thousand yards, right? Mm -hmm. Following on that, we got dial-up scopes. And ballistic calculators on our smartphones that can tell us exactly how to compensate for any trajectory as long as you put your inputs in there, your velocity and your bullet type, your mm -hmm. altitude and so forth correctly. Then we got laser range finders that combine an atmospheric sensor with a ballistic calculator and you upload your ballistics to that. When you range it, it'll kick out a dial-up solution for your scope. We have overcome the distance compensation problem. We don't have to judge range. We don't have to wonder where our bullet's going to hit, okay? Then premium modern bullets have come along and minimized wind deflection so that you can, because wind is not still the joker in the deck. You can't plug a wind into a ballistic calculator if you don't know what that wind is. Wind is variable. It's always fluctuating. And there are often multiple vectors between you and the, the animal or target you're gonna shoot at. And you have to factor all those things in. So modern bullets help minimize that tremendously. Less wind drift means a greater hit percentage, right? And this is something that Aaron Davidson was talking about is so crucial to long range shooting. You combine all those factors. I believe that a modern rifleman with a really good rifle, a really good optic, and really good ammunition in his scope that knows how to use a range finder and a ballistic calculator properly can be a very ethical 600-yard shooter. This is my opinion, right? Um, I don't see why anybody that dedicates themselves can't achieve that. 600 yards to me is now the, the new 400 yards. Mm -hmm. But there is a and caveat to this, you have to have practical experience. If you're coming from Minnesota and you've never shot past 100 yards, even if you have all the, the toys, don't be taking a 600-yard shot until you've spent some time doing 600-yard shots on steel targets or rocks or whatever. But that's kind of the, the fundamental capability that I think most serious hunters who are also serious riflemen mm -hmm. can achieve. For your average guy that doesn't want to deal with all the technology, I think, you know, on, on my podcast, I preach quarter mile capability. A serious backcountry hunter should be able to shoot a quarter mile ethically and competent, excuse me, competently. Quarter mile is, of course, 440 yards. Let's call it 450 yards. If you can shoot that far, you're going to take 
good advantage of 90% of the hunting opportunities you, you have in, in the backcountry. So we, we can shoot ethically and well at 600 yards. We can shoot ethically and well at 440. Should we? We eventually have to make a decision. I guess it's an individual decision. And I think we both think that leave it up to the individual as much as possible, but sort of we're exploring these uh, and not going to put this on anyone. Is there, do you begin to, is there a point at which you feel that you begin to lose part of the experience of hunting or are you pretty much like, Oh, it's, it's a, it's a f- equal and opposite exchange. So at 1200 yards, you're, you've got as, as much fulfillment. It's just from a different thing. That's a great question. And I think it depends a lot on the individual and how we're wired. Mm-hmm. I love hunting with a longbow in thick timber and trying to call elk. That is such a different experience from sitting on a ridge and glassing a couple of harems of elk across the canyon trying to find a really good bull and make a clean ethical shot on them. That is just as fulfilling to watch the interplay of the herds and the elk and so forth for me. But there are people that are wired all one way or all the other way. And I think as long as you work hard to achieve true ethical lethality, whether it's making a 20 yard shot with a longbow, which is hard for me, or a 600 yard shot with a modern precision hunting rifle, I'm fine with either one. And as far as whether or not we should, you know, I think we have to face the fact that even those of us, like myself, being dragged kicking and screaming into the current scene with social media and smartphones and so forth, we are modern man collectively. And it behooves us to make the most of our capabilities and the tools that are offered us. And if I then choose to go home and pull a, a Ruger number one single shot out of my cabinet, chambered in 257 Roberts, and go deer hunting with an, a self-imposed 150-yard maximum range, great. I'm choosing a certain type of hunting and the experience that comes with that, right? Mm-hmm. If I then take my little girl out who had a knee operation two weeks before the hunting season, This is a fact because we did this and she could only walk with crutches and that about 10 steps. We um, went out on the four wheeler. We found a big ridge and we glassed the biggest buck I saw all last season up the last day of the hunt. Kind of like your elk, right? It was 1,411 yards and Audrey is a phenomenal shot. She's the best shot of all my kids, all of her animals so far. She's killed with a single shot. And I had my best long range rifle there. And she looked at it and she looked at me and she looked at that deer again through the spotting scope and humbly, tentatively, she said, how far can that rifle shoot? (laughs) She wanted so bad to try that shot. There was no way to get closer. The the terrain, the timing, the the buck was on his way to a big, deep, dark canyon where he was going to bed, right? I explained the situation to her. And we collectively both agreed this wasn't going to happen. That was way past our ethical limits. The conversation was fun, though. It was enlightening to her. It was good for me to be able to try and show her why the ethics were in question at this point. If that buck had been 600 yards away, she'd have killed it. Okay, But 
1,400 yards, not going to happen with me, even with my very best rifle and, and time to set up, right? Now, on the flip side, let's go back to you. You know, you've said most of what you've learned about rifles and rifle hunting and so forth has been from my well, podcast. I don't know that is. So, <laughs> on that premise, yeah. if I had been able to go with you on that cow elk hunt, and the day before I'd handed you that same rifle that Audrey and I had, and spent a half hour with you shooting from filled positions at targets to 600 yards, you would have killed that cow elk with a shot on the X. Especially if I'd been there to kneel in the snow beside you and coach you through it. Yeah. and, and It's 100% me, doable and you'd have elk sure. meat in your freezer. And, and, and I think, at least where I'm at, the difference between 300 yards and 500 yards is that five, it's 500 yards, you're sometimes shooting cross canyon. Mm-hmm. And Usually, uh, probably. Yeah, and and I and I think just to sort of put it put it into context, that that year I messed up, but I uh, the, and I came at the next season with a sort of burning uh, fervor to do it right, and I shot an elk at two hundred yards, mm-hmm. and I think that I developed my skills as a hunter and my sort of character as a person in the in the. Uh, attempt to do it a different way the next year and not to repeat sort of the sins of my past. Uh, and, and I'm, so I'm, I'm sort of grateful that I didn't shoot it at 500 yards, especially as a new hunter. Mm -hmm. As a new hunter, like if you've grown up with iron sights, you know, when you move to a scope, it's great. And if you've grown up with a scope, when you move to, you know, dialing, it's, it's awesome. But, uh, if I had started with 500 yard shots, I'm not sure that I ever would have been driven because hunting is hard, even with even taking 500 yard shots or a thousand yard shots. Sure. It's always hard, right? Yeah. And so I'm not sure if I would have been driven to develop the same skills and developing those skills, I think, made me a better person. Mm-hmm. And that's an excellent point. Uh, with my own kids, the boys in particular have um, their 22s that they get to start their <laughs> serious shooting career off, all iron sided. Because I want them to develop fundamental skills at shooting up close with challenging equipment. And then when they take even a 22 with a little dial and bolt action, you know, on a, on a scope and they're ringing targets at, you know, small targets at a hundred yards, it's like a revelation to them. And sometimes those challenges, exactly like they did with you, push us to better ourselves. And that's an, that's a wonderful thing. Yeah. If you'd shot that elk and dropped her in the snow right there, it might have been too easy. Well, it last day of the it season, it wouldn't have been it, too easy. It would have easy. been too easy. I would have been ecstatic. But, but you might have been overconfident. Yeah. It yeah. might have led you to trying things you shouldn't have tried. And it certainly wouldn't have helped you build your close range wood, woodsmanship. Yeah. But then again, I'm also not getting out there with a longbow and trying to shoot one at 10 yards. So it's, it's, sort, of, it's sort of hard to delineate. Uh, you said we're sort of whether we want to be Luddites or not, we're brought into the modern age. And a, a part of that is social media. And I think touching back on sort of the conversation we we're having earlier about the future of hunting recruitment and all these ideas, there's two camps when it comes to how hunting should market itself to the non-hunter. I think most people think that the non-hunting public being the largest majority, hunters and animal rights people on one, each side of the spectrum they don't compose the majority. It's mostly, I think, an undecided public. Uh, we There's differing ideas about how best to reach out to that group and market uh, the lifestyle to them. I think one side says, 
focus on this sort of noble idea, you know, the noble hunt. It's about meat. It's about the environment. It's about your character. All, I think, obviously, both sides are real. Uh, it's about family and the pursuit and your love of nature and being a conservationist as part of funny. It's all, all very good. And the other side says, you know, uh, uh, the cleaner you make this look, the uh, less understanding they're going to have of the real messiness that is a part of killing something. You're taking something's life. It is oftentimes inherently messy and it's always violent. Uh, you know, show the gore, show the kill shot, show the trophy. Mm. And, and, and I, I, I empathize with both sides because I'm, I'm getting all the, the noble hunting stuff. And also I feel uh, an ecstatic joy when I'm trying to kill something and a thrill. And I think to deny that is to deny a crucial component of killing, which is that, you know, the sort of euphemism for harvesting. Like, yeah, we are harvesting, but we're not harvesting crops. Like we're killing. Something. We're not driving a swather. <laughs> uh, so although there's probably a lot of deer kill like that. Uh, so could you chart a direction? I think you're, it seems like you're fairly considered and careful with what you do on social media. And if those are the two sides of the pendulum, uh, where, do, how do you see that conversation? That's a real challenge. And it's another area where perception is so often based on individual uh, stance and even the way we're wired, right? I think the people that are super independent and, uh, you know, freedom loving are likely to, to lean towards saying, show the reality. And people that are more uh, just inherently diplomatic tend to be like, well, let's not in, you know, offend anybody by doing so. Really, I think both camps have so much value. I wish we could just bring them together. And there's some really interesting attributes in this. From the time they were very small, my kids have never been allowed to call any food or anything that can contribute to food gross, mm. including gutting an animal, right? A little kid, two-year-old kid or four-year-old kid plopped beside an animal that you're taking apart, whether you're doing the gutless method and lifting quarters off or you've got it hanging from the farm tractor and you're gutting it, they're going to be fascinated they're not going to be off-put until their mom or dad goes, ew, that stinks, look at the blood, you know, and the stomach gets popped accidentally and it flows out and the, you know, somebody, parent or older sibling is retching and saying, <laughs> I can't watch this. <laughs> Little kids are naturally fascinated yeah. by, I don't know, for lack of a better word, butchering. Hmm. They like seeing how everything works together. And if you can take the lungs out, Say, look, here's the windpipe. This is where the air comes down and it goes in these lungs. And look, this is the heart with these big arteries coming out. And when it pumps, it sends oxygen to the brain and it lets the animal think and make quick decisions. But it wasn't quick enough to get away from me, was it? And now we get to eat this animal. You can take a turkey leg and let them pull on the tendons after you've cut it off and watch those toes flex. Kids love that sort of thing and they're not. It's not macabre, you know, it's not like a, a gruesome experience unless you make it that way as an adult and you demonstrate certain types of behavior that they then adopt. I've never seen a little kid that was totally pre-unconditioned, that wasn't fascinated by butchering an animal 
and then taking a piece of it and throwing it on the fire and eating it. They're like, wow, this is cool. I'm eating a turkey, you know? So I think there's so much societally that we can do to try and um, make this process less mystical and gory. doesn't have to be gory unless we make it that way. You're going to deal with awful and stomach matter and gutting and and... I mean, every one of my kids now has been cutting and wrapping meat since they could hold a knife safely as part of the family tradition. We love eating wild game meat. As far as the photographs and how we represent ourselves on social media, when I, I should back up. Social media and I are uh, distant friends, right? It's not natural for me to create posts. I have to think them through and about what I'm trying to, to say. And maybe that's why I, I appreciate you seeing that, saying they come across as fairly considered, but I'm not like that younger person is like, oh, I got to post this, mm-hmm. right? It just doesn't, my brain doesn't work that way. It's, it's work for me to post on social media. So I try and present stuff that's worth looking at. Otherwise, why is it worth my time, right? But as far as not ever posting a kill shot, that's not me. If I shot that animal, I will own it, right? I'll also try and add a, a picture, like, you know, of my son holding out the back straps from his deer. Like, I took a great picture of him doing that. He processed his entire deer by himself this fall. 12 year old kid, right? Totally comfortable in his own skin with his knife handling that deer because I had to go at a meeting or something I had to get to. I said, good luck. You've done this before with me. Have at it, right? And then I came back, helped him cape off the skull, and he did a good job. Um, I don't think there's a a wrong way to present it. I don't think these two camps, this is just me again. It's one man's opinion, right? I don't think they should be arguing over this. They should be supporting each other in it and saying, look, Every human is wired differently. Just like every elk responds differently to taking a bullet, every human is going to respond differently to social media stimulation. Let's keep it respectful. That's my primary concern. Let's keep it ethical. And let's be true to ourselves. That's good. That's a good answer. Uh, so you so you said social media is sort of not natural for you. And earlier we were talking about taking you go and in order to sort of uh not feel like you're missing home when you're out in nature it's useful for you because it's part of your your income and more than your income it's your profession and you're creating something by being out there so i think a a, a trap that social media offers is that you begin to see the world in a consumptive way in which everything you look at is immediately framed in your head for uh, the creation and consumption for others. Uh, I think it's the case with all forms of art, and it's sort of the catch-22 that art gives you a fresh sight in things, but it also, you know, an art being super general, any form of production, you know, social media is creation of some sort. Uh, do you feel like social media does that more for... I, I've done, you know, photography and writing in the past, and... When I'm very much in those modes, there's a slight remove from the present situation, which when I feel it's most acute with social media. And when I feel it, I really uh, feel uncomfortable with it. Am I, oh, am I, am I doing this? 
to create this thing for others. I think it's beautiful to create for others to consume, but uh, I, I also want my experience to be very much in the present moment. Do you feel that social media does that differently from writing, photography, and uh, do you feel that sort of separation even when you were just doing writing and photography, uh, the sort of uh, step removed from the present moment? Sure. Social media, uh, I think we have so much autonomy on the way we present whatever we're looking at. We as humans tend to sometimes give in to our mm, more carnal instincts to try and generate, let's say, the most, the greatest amount of, of likes, right? And we can often misrepresent something in social media because of that. And I'll give you an example here in a minute. Writing for a magazine, especially a technical magazine like Shooting Times, on the flip side, is very close to a peer-reviewed journal. If you say something that's inflated, your editors are going to catch it, and they're going to call you out for it. And if they don't, the readers, the longtime readers that know their stuff, are going to write in and call you out on it. So with writing, it's the truest, most honest form of conveying information still to this day because you've got so many knowledgeable eyes examining your work and making sure, one, that you didn't screw up in the information you're presenting, two, that it's grammatically correct, and you know, three, that their readers are, are not led to believe something they shouldn't be by a biased viewpoint, right? Digital media is a big step removed from that because basically anybody can write and present what they want. And if they're good enough at uh, language, convincing writing or YouTubing, whatever it is, they can, uh, without consequence generally, present uh, very biased opinions. So this is why anything that's digital is uh, certainly not to be automatically trusted like you almost can with writing, printed word, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the good digital outlets also have editors, and they don't let their contributors get away with inflated opinions or biased information, anything like that. But how do you know which ones those are? You know, the big organizations, Outdoor Life, Field & Stream, those guys with those big uh, digital presences, those are going to be accurate. But... Joe Blow's blog about you know how he shot a 700-inch mule deer at 1,900 yards with a 22 Hornet. You can publish stuff like that, right? And state it as fact on in the digital world. So you have to be careful. You have to read with a, a suspicious and discerning eye. Podcasting is kind of like that too. I mean, I could get on my podcast and and say it's good to hunt geese with a 700 nitro express and you know there's nothing more ludicrous but i could state it i'd lose a whole bunch of listeners yeah, <laughs> you know I there could, is a yeah. consequence there yeah, but. Yeah. so wrapping back to the social media and that example i wanted to present shortly after moving to idaho i became acquainted with uh, a man in the construction industry he was doing some work on the house we were building and he heard that I'm a writer and, a, and do podcasts and very cheerful but very blunt individual that's since become one of my very good friends and a good hunting partner. He looked me right in the eye and says, so are you real? I was like, what do you mean? Am I really a writer? He's like, no. 
what you say and post and stuff. Is it real or is it inflated? I was like, what? I was so like discombobulated by his question that I didn't quite know what he mean meant. And he said, okay, look this up. Get on Instagram. He doesn't do Instagram. He said, okay, look up so-and-so. This is my brother-in-law. He said, look at that Bucky shot. Looks like, how big is that? And I was like, well, the picture's a little, you know, compressed, right? He's got really close to it. But I'd say just at first glance, that's like a 180-inch mule deer. And he's like, yep, that was a 145-inch deer. Mm-hmm. He says he does that with everything. He uses photography to make his animals look huge. And then he says sometimes he'll walk, you know, 100 yards off the road and pop something. And he writes about, or in his post, he'll make, he won't necessarily state it, but he'll say, you know why? I hunted really rough country for four days before finding this buck. Well, maybe he did. Maybe he's in his truck in rough country and he was out there four days, but he leaves the truck part out, right? So he says, that's what I mean. Are you real? Mm-hmm. I said, well, I try to be. I do my best to be. And I said, I can't get away with photographs like that because if you know anything about cameras, you know how they can be manipulated and editors don't let you get away with that. And anybody else, you know, that's doing it is going to know. Anyway, so I think on social media, that's like the furthest removed from the truth source of transferring information there can be in our current world. Print, of course, is the most accurate. Social media is on the far end because we're not just, as humans, we're not just writing about something that we, you know, we want people to appreciate and gain information and knowledge from. We're trying to make ourselves look appealing. Mm. And it's very much human nature to make that decent buck. I mean, there's no shame in shooting a 145-inch 4x4 mule deer, particularly if he's a fully mature deer. But there is some shame. You should have some shame in trying to make him look like a 180-inch deer, mm. right? Yeah. It's And it also seems like rather than being, I guess, depending on the type of social media, it seems to be related to the duration. like. Uh, although you're saying writing is the most accurate, I can see what you mean by writing being the most accurate. You know, you can bullshit writing in that it's hard to establish authenticity in, in the internet age where all these numbers that you're writing about guns, you know, you could be pulling them directly out of the, off the internet. Whereas I think it's very hard to bullshit that on a podcast. And you were saying, you know, if you gave an inappropriate suggestion for hunting geese, you know, there'd be no consequences except for the main consequence, which is, you know, people would know that you're inauthentic or that you're foolish or something like that. And you would feel the repercussions of it. Interestingly, social media has such a short duration and mm-hmm. that, that it's such a short form that it's, you know, uh, for perhaps the least thoughtful. It's also got the lowest barrier for criticism, but that doesn't seem to hold it to a higher bar. <laughs> like it's, it's very easy for all of us to go on and go, you know, call that guy out on some nonsense, but that doesn't seem to be a limiting factor. Yeah. And on that note, the, like the so-called internet trolls, I have no patience for them. I just scroll right past anything. I don't get much of that, thankfully, but I have friends that do. Other writers and so forth that have a bigger digital footprint in their writing and so forth. And to me, I've, I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but any comment I make, I ask myself, would I be willing to make that to this producer's face man to man or woman to woman whatever woman to man man to woman would you feel good you know about yourself as a human about standing looking that person in the eye and saying that or are you hiding behind the 
protection of the Ethernet. Yeah. If you are, go spend a little introspection and see if you can't come to terms with being a real person again. It can be downright disheartening getting in the comments section on social media. Yeah. Uh, and I admire you for responding to all of your comments because I, it's a huge part of the community that you've built, but I, I would find it difficult. But I think it's testament to what you're doing, that you're attracting a certain type of people that you're not getting too many trolls or asinine questions. Uh, okay, I think we sort of covered social media. This is, uh, you've hunted a lot in Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, hunting tourism, I think, is often and easily vilified by the non-hunting public. Uh, for some reason, people see African game as sacrosanct. Maybe they feel it's too threatened or too majestic to be hunted or it's this far off. You know, they don't seem to have the same problem with killing a mule deer as they do with killing a kudu uh, or a zebra. <laughs> you know, like, uh, and, and the other thing is that hunting as a visitor, visitor, I don't think you have the same depth of place as a local. And that's an element that the non-hunting public picks up on and unconsciously or consciously condemns. So how does hunting as a visitor to an unfamiliar place feel different. You've got, a, I think, a, a deep sense of place here. Uh, and how could hunting tourism be better marketed to the non-hunting public so that they could understand, you know, all of the positives of this thing? That's a huge challenge. Uh, just educating the non-hunting public about hunting. If they don't want to read about hunting or if they only want to read negative stuff, they choose to read negative stuff. Very hard to put Uh, solid, reliable information in front of people that don't want that information. So that's a challenge I don't have a real good answer for. As far as the hunting tourism and its impact on wildlife populations around the world, whether it's in Greenland or for muskox and and reindeer caribou or in Africa for kudu and zebra. By the way, zebra meat is fantastic. Some of the best steaks I've ever had came from zebra or elephants. Uh, let's just use elephants as maybe one of the most controversial subjects we can throw into this mix, okay? Because it will spotlight and showcase the same issues with a lot of other species. So elephants from a distance are viewed with a hugely skewed perspective from most people around the world. The first thing to remember is that Africa is a continent, not a country. And within each country in Africa, there are distinctive regions. That continent is gigantic. You can fit all of North America, including Canada, on the African continent. The equator cuts the continent in half, so you've got a vast spectrum of habitats, ranging from the most sterile deserts to the most verdant, fertile jungles, right? And a lot of Africa has elephants. However, from a distance, Hollywood and groups like that view elephants as one demographic. So elephants across Africa need to be protected, right? They're almost sacred. They should never be hunted and shot. So then let's, let's zoom in and recognize that animal populations need to be, uh, I don't want to say managed yet, but at least viewed and analyzed on a regional basis because there are areas in, I don't know, a certain percentage, but probably 30 or 40% of elephant habitat across Africa that are 
overpopulated by three or four times. Now, when an elephant population outgrows the carrying capacity of its habitat, what happens? Elephants push over trees that are two to 600 years old because there aren't enough trees to get a fill just nibbling off the low-hanging leaves, so they push them over. They eat everything on it and they move on to the next one. Well, with that tree having taken two to 600 years to grow, how long is it going to be before that aspect of their resource is replenished, right? And the elephants do this on a broad uh, spread scale. They've turned a lot of their habitats into moonscapes because they have not had any curbing influence on their population. As a result, you get massive numbers of elephants dying of disease and starvation. That's an ugly way to die. As mankind, we have populated the earth, and some people would say in ways that we shouldn't have. I don't get into that because it's done, right? We are at a point now where we as humans are responsible for being stewards of every aspect that we influence. And even if that means keeping an elephant population in check, we need to own that. Plus, the act of hunting an elephant is not a, a horrible thing. It's a, usually a grueling endeavor. The average elephant hunt takes 10 to 20 days, and you'll put on 10 to 15 miles walking during that time. You do a lot of tracking. It's a vastly endeavor-intensive hunt. And when you take that animal, it's very dangerous to you. And then across Africa, every elephant is utilized, every scrap. They feed literally hundreds of local people every time an elephant goes down. And often those people have a hard time getting protein of any kind. This is a huge boon to them. Also, elephants are expensive to hunt. And so hunters that can afford the Forty to $100,000 it takes to book an, a hunt and go do that are injecting massive quantities of uh, money into the local economies. They're giving jobs to the local people who are professional trackers and guides and so forth. There is not a single downside to elephant hunting in populations that can sustain it. Every single aspect is conservationally beneficial. The opposite is catastrophic. You destroy habitat. So now your region that should have sustained, let's say, 15,000 elephants can maybe sustain 2,000. How has that helped the elephant population in any way? The people are poor. Poaching is rampant because nobody has jobs anymore. It's horrible. And there's another, I mean, the, the really obvious examples are things like rhinos and Cecil the lion, right? Yeah. With rhinos, people don't understand a big mature male rhino hunt will sell for $300,000. It's crazy. And the, the opportunity is so rare now that a really discerning experienced sportsmen that really have a thing for Africa will pay that, you know, the affluent guys. But the misunderstood thing is these guys are all tremendous conservationists as well. They're not just spending that $300,000 so they can go shoot something. The, the experience itself isn't worth it to them, even if they're pretty rich. The fact that they're given $300,000 to the 
biology department that handles the local rhino population does mean something to them. That's why they're willing to spend that level of money. Now let's look at the actual biological uh, ripples involved. When a rhino hits a certain age, he becomes sterile. A bull rhino, completely sterile, can no longer produce uh, young rhinos. Yet, this is just past, these animals are unique this way, it's just past their prime. So, a big bull rhino may have four to ten years worth of dominating strength and vigor and vitality in his, uh, you know, in his life before a younger fertile bull can bump him out of that herd of 10 to 30 whatever rhino cows. So if you don't take that old bull out, you create, as a biologist managing that population, you create an age gap where no calves are born for five to 10 years. How is that beneficial to rhino population comeback? It's not. So you get somebody that'll come in and shoot that rhino, give $300,000 to the game management department, take the sterile bull out so you don't get a gap in the calf production. Every single way this benefits the rhino population. There is no downside other than, oh, he killed a rhino. Mm -hmm. He's evil, <laughs> right? So, yeah, yeah. So, no, exactly. I think that was an excellent explanation of not just wildlife management in the context of tourism in Africa, but also in wildlife management here uh, or, or anywhere. Uh, why, wh why do we get sort of Cecil the Lion instances? Uh, you're saying I, you can't show information to any group that doesn't want to see it, obviously, and that's no doubt true. I feel like that information, like the, the many, many people would, would uh, be utterly convinced by what you just said. Why is that information not, is it, is it being presented to people? I don't feel like it is being presented to people and that there's this huge mass of the public who, because what you've done is you've explored a, a situation in depth in order to see all the nuance. And we remove all the nuance and see Cecil the Lion and we misunderstand because without nuance, you misunderstand. Is there a nuanced uh, explanation of things being presented to the public? And if so, uh, why is it not taking hold? I don't think there is. And I think it's, uh, the, the reason is it's too scary. Like, if I were to print that explanation, convincing and accurate as it may be, I would get a huge amount of negative feedback. If I was to post that explanation on Instagram with a picture of a dead rhino, I would get a huge amount of negative impact or negative feedback, right? From people that have their minds made up so substantially, they have no flexibility in their viewpoint. And so it's a, it's simply a matter of, um, it's very uncomfortable mm, but to put yourself out like this, yeah. right? People that are willing to, excuse me, consider the fact are a totally different group, but they're, Unfortunately, the vast majority, but the vocal minority, they're not going to jump in and say, hey, I learned something. Thankful. You know, I'm thankful for this. You've just opened my mind and educated me about managing elephants on a regional level and why managing old bull rhinos is so beneficial and important to the future of rhinos. I understand now. Uh, go, go for it, man. You don't get that feedback. You get guys that go like, huh. 
that's really cool. And maybe that night they discuss it with their significant other, you know, before falling asleep. And that's about as far as it goes. There are some groups, the Dallas Safari Club, uh, the Safari Club International, uh, any hunting magazine worth its salt is trying to, to educate people and promote those yeah. viewpoints. But you got to be somebody that's already looking at the Dallas Safari Club newsletter or you don't see it. Yeah, that's fairly sort of mm-hmm. preaching to the choir. Uh, it seems like a, yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. And and possibly the guy who goes, oh, wow, did I learn something from this? I've got an open mind. Then they scroll through the comments and they see the 100 animal rights people saying, you're a, you know, a Nazi for doing this or whatever it is. Like the thing which blows my mind on Instagram, and I wish I'd never gone there, is the people who say, and the animal holocaust, which I think is just a, in, in terrible taste. But uh, the, I think, digestible, uh, not fun or happy, but uh, easily consumable material for a wider non-hunting public uh, it is maybe the solution to getting that information out there. But I think what you just said was excellent. Thank you. There are groups, you know, even Meat Eater with Stephen Ronella, he's done more for changing, I think, the average American family's perception of hunting and eating wild game meat than any other current organization. So there is some good being done. Mm. I, it's always going to be an uphill battle because at the top, there's the animal rights people throwing rocks at you, right? And it, it's challenging, but uh, I mean, it's not hopeless. No, you're, you're doing it. I think you're, for instance, uh, you've brought me into the gun thing and I well, didn't come at it with a huge interest in guns. You know, uh, I think that this is the type of, I think, long form outreach that uh, changes people's perception of things. Well, somebody's got to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, keep on. Joseph, uh, could you tell us about your experiences hound hunting? I think I've heard in the podcast that you hound hunted a little bit in your youth or a lot of it. I did. I'd call it a little bit, but uh, for about seven or eight years, my brother and I had a pack of hounds. We started with two, and then we had a female that had pups, and we kept four of the pups. So we had six for a while. We had a, a bloodhound walker cross that was super cold-nosed, really great dog. Uh, and then we had, the rest were mostly a red bone and uh, walker cross. Real good tree dogs, maybe not quite as cold-nosed, but very aggressive. And we would generally hunt, I mean, this was back before uh, radio telemetry was widely available. Like government trappers and hunters that were funded and had some equipment provided to them, had the radio telemetry collars and whatnot. But there was no such thing as a GPS dog collar. You couldn't tone them and call them back if they were way out across the canyons. If you lost your dogs, you had to track your dogs in the snow to find them again. And so, you know, many, many days I'd be on my horse following dog tracks that were following lion tracks in snow and we'd eventually catch up with them. The area we hunted too was a non-motorized area. You couldn't take a snowmobile or a truck in there or whatever. So it was all horseback or on foot. And as I used to say, I've snowy rivered off the side of more than one <laughs> canyon. Because when, as you know very well, when you get behind a good pack of dogs on a relatively hot track and the, there's just so much excitement in the area, you, you kind of tend to get carried away. 
And especially if you're trying to keep up with dogs running hard so you don't lose them, right? So most of our hunting was done on horseback. A lot of it, sometimes we'd get into heavy oak brush thickets and we'd have to get off the horses and one of us would lead the horses out around this big thicket while the other one would sometimes crawl on hands and knees on dog tracks down through the oak brush for an hour or two till we popped out the other side. Mm -hmm. And you're, you're following the tracks because without GPS, you were they were just so far ahead of you, you couldn't hear them. Right. Yeah. We would go out pretty early. We'd try and get riding in, you know, that first hour after dawn and we'd ride till about two o'clock. If we didn't have a fresh track by then, we'd leave because you have three or four hours till dark and without the ability to call your dogs back and I mean, often we're getting out at nine or 10,000 feet unloading from the horse trailer. It's going to be cold at night and hounds are thin haired. It's not real healthy for them to be out there in those elevations in a foot and a half of snow or whatever the case was. But it was an adventure. Uh, it was expensive for a couple of teenagers trying to maintain a dog hound pack. Uh, even back then, dog food cost a lot, but it was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you spend a fair number of days out looking for lost dogs before you had GPS and stuff? No, we only lost dogs a few times, but we had pretty good horses and, and we were fearless back then. We were teenagers. So yeah, we would ride through things and across things and down canyon sides that we never should have been riding down. I certainly wouldn't now, but at the time we were able to pull it off and keep up with the dogs or at least find the dogs before dark in most cases. Were, uh, and were you mostly hunt lines in the snow? You know, usually if there was at least patchy snow, like 30 or 40% snow, we could catch a line in pretty short order. Mm -hmm. We never did get, um, you know, the sorted dogs developed that would run lines 100% on dry ground. That's a really uh, extreme art form of hound hunting that I've, I've got a tremendous amount of admiration for because it's hard. And those dogs are few and far between that really excel at that. Yeah. The, it, to me, that's sort of the, the pinnacle of yeah. it. Uh, oh, and, but you were mostly hunting in the snow and how did the horses do in the snow? Oh, fine. As long as you have good horses and it's not more than about a foot and a half deep, they're fine. We had some adventures with the horse trailer and the truck. We uh, hunted big canyon country and often we're driving little gravel logging roads and whatnot and Sometimes you'd just about slide off the road into a big canyon and have to unload all the horses and put chains on the truck tires because you're pushing snow with your front bumper in some cases, right? And it got pretty hairy sometimes. But again, we were young and fearless. <laughs> uh, and something that's asked on this podcast of sort of these, a lot of these guys who hunt on horseback is, do you prefer horses or mules for something like that? And now I guess you've got a lot, a lot of experience packing horses and mules too. Mostly horses, yeah. We I grew up with horses. Uh, my dad always said that a mule was an abomination. <laughs> and so I always just kind of figured that, you know, horses usually pretty personable. And yeah. then in 2011, I hunted with Sean Little of Snowy Springs Outfitters out of uh, Kalispell, Montana. And he's mostly a mule guy. And he put me on a mule. And I'm not cussing here. I'm stating simple fact. Her name was Slut Whore. <laughs> <laughs> Naming mules is an art form. You have to be a mule man. He also had one named Ichabod and a couple others. Just fantastic. And we ended up hunting for 
10 days in Bob Marshall in some very gnarly country. And I rode that mule places that I would never take a horse. She was so incredibly steady and sure-footed that uh, it totally changed my perspective on mules. They're horrible to ride at a gallop, right? They're real weird gated at a gallop. So if you're trying to get somewhere in a hurry, a horse is better. But just for going hour after hour, day after day in very treacherous country, I'm a mule guy now. I like them both. I use horses mostly now because good mules are hard to find. They're very expensive. Yeah, that's what I hear. But man, I admire them. And if you if you're going for your next pack animal, you know I've got a couple of really good pack horses. So, and not to throw another uh, you know wrench into the works here, but the next pack animals I hope to get are llamas. Oh yeah for you know backcountry hunting on foot but yeah i would i would love to own a mule to ride and pack as need dictated because again as you get a little bit older you get a little more adverse to getting hurt because it takes so much longer to heal and to recover and rebuild your physical capability afterwards and Mm -hmm. so yeah did you ever bear hunt with those dogs we did a couple times but Never successfully, actually. Catching a bear is a different ball game, as you know. And our dogs are so used to hunting cats that uh, we just we never found a really fresh bear trail track in snow. Where we hunted, generally the snow came about the time the bears hibernated. Yeah. And then the hound pursuit season ended in the spring before they came out of hibernation. So it was kind of rare to find a, a good fresh bear track to trail. And never did... Get good at it. What what got you into the hounds as a t- teenager with your brother? The romance of it. And there was an old houndsman, uh, Stan McLean, out of Tropic, Utah. Just a legend in that world down there. And somehow we got put in touch with him and he said, come over and hunt with me a little bit. So we had an old truck and an old horse trailer and we'd trailer our horses over to wherever he was hunting. And just go out with him for a day whenever we had the opportunity. And one day he, he called and said, uh, you guys stop by next time you come through. And he presented us with a hound puppy, just gave it to us. And it was out of one of his really good males. It's the, the half bloodhound, half walker. Yeah, I was going to ask that you about had. that. That's an interesting. Yeah, he was tall, rangy. He could go forever and just had the, the happiest big sloppy grin you'll ever see on a dog's face wonderful dog and uh yeah he kind of became the the foundation for our lion hunting endeavors going forward for about eight or ten years Mm -hmm. and then what what got you out of it oh life (laughs) my brother stayed on the farm a little longer than i did and so i ended up basically just turning all the dogs over to him they were worth a fair bit, but they cost a lot to feed. And if you know, I just said, look, if you're willing to foot the bill to feed them, uh, you take the dogs. I'm going off to college to find a woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> wise choice, a good trade. Uh, and something that another thing that gets asked sort of of these, uh, a lot of these old dry ground guys is how many lines have you seen outside of the dogs? You've probably spent a lot more time behind a set of binoculars or a spotting scope than most houndsmen. Uh, have you? Have you seen lions outside of dogs and how many? I have, but never in their natural habitat, only in uh, a trap. We had a, a cat taking goats, sheeps, and <laughs> that was funny, sheeps, goats, sheep, 
turkeys and geese mm -hmm. from, well, they were my mom. My mom had all the small livestock, but she got pretty uh, torqued over that. And we got the government trapper in and he managed to trap the cat. So I saw that cat in a trap right on our farm there, right? Low country. But other than that, I know I've been close to a lot of cats in the back country, but I've never seen one aside from over hounds. They're, as you know, they're super secretive. Mm -hmm. uh, another element too was when we started hunting them, there were a lot of cats around, but they quickly got whittled back because they turned it into kind of an open over-the-counter unit type thing on a quota. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, hounds are a good way to see cats. And without them, you're probably, in my experience, not going to see cats unless you live somewhere that they're never hunted with hounds and the populations are really high, then you might. What, and when you've sort of known that they're around but haven't seen them, how are you knowing that they're around you? Tracks, generally, either fresh tracks in the sand or fresh tracks in the snow. Mm -hmm. Like if you hike out onto a point to glass the afternoon away and as you're going out with your headlamp in the dark, there's tracks on your snowshoe trail. Mm -hmm. I've had that happen. Yeah. And you know that cat followed your trail down, probably looked at you from behind and then went on his way. Yeah. I guess it's mm -hmm. good to know that they're looking at you and turning around. That's sort of comforting, but it is, it's always a little bit uncomfortable in yeah. that situation. There were several instances before they opened that unit to over-the-counter tags on a quota system that I think contributed to the fish and game department's motivation to do that. I had a friend that was sitting glassing, and he looked over to his left, and there was a – it took him a minute to recognize it, but about eight feet away, there's – a, a cougar's tail protruding from under a sagebrush. And he just, he looked real hard and he van eventually was able to discern the, the mountain lion's eyes looking through the top of the sagebrush at him from about eight feet away. Wow. And it was just sitting there. He thought it was the coolest experience ever, but he's kind of a gnarly dude. He's not afraid of much. Mm -hmm. That same region down across the other side of that canyon, there was a power company employee who was looking for shed antlers thankfully had his handheld radio on him and happened into a, a lioness with yearling cubs or even two-year-old. They were almost adults. And they chased him up a tree. Wow. A big juniper tree. And he was there for four and a half hours. He would throw pine cones at them and they'd scamper off chasing the pine cones. A couple of times he climbed down because the female went and laid under a tree in the shade about 40 feet away. He'd climb down and quickly gather some rocks. They'd chase him back up the tree. Whoa. He'd throw the rocks at him. They'd chase the rocks. And, of course, he'd radioed out as soon as he got treed by these lions. <laughs> Good role reversal. Yeah. So the game warden came in with a couple other guys, and they wanted to try and shoot that female because clearly she wasn't teaching her young anything about respect for humans and uh when they came in the, the cat spooked off they got a quick shot at the female but did not get her mm -hmm. and that was that another lady uh, about two miles south of there was hunting deer sitting on a kind of a a finger that led into a a, a meadow down below her where she'd seen several bucks coming and she was on her own she heard something behind her thankfully she turned around and there was a a young adult about 20 feet away in full stalking mode, tail twitching, crouching, mm -hmm. the whole thing. And she started yelling at it, throwing stuff at it. And it couldn't figure her out. 
it couldn't get a read on what she was doing, but it was clearly hungry. It was young. It was probably kicked off its mother and hunting on its own for the first time. And she finally shot it when her rifle barrel was nearly touching the cat's chest. Whoa. So it kept just slinking closer and closer and closer. And it would have jumped on her. Whoa. It was one of the few instances of that. So can I tell you my favorite possible hound and, sorry, not hound, but lion and human interaction thing. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> Years ago, about four years ago, I heard from a source that I remember, this is where the, the story kind of comes unraveled, was a very reliable source, somebody I trusted that does a lot of research. For the life of me, I can't figure out who it was. There's about 20 individuals that could have been. And this person said he'd recently read a study conducted in Colorado and California on all the jogger attacks mm -hmm. by mountain lions, right? Neither of these states have hound hunting and there was... For about 10 years, there were a lot of joggers attacked. And this gentleman told me that it, they discovered a very unique characteristic that all of these people shared. They were vegetarians. Yeah, yeah I laughed my head off. I yeah. thought it was a joke. He's like, no, really? Yeah. And as such, they only all they could conclu conclude is that they smelled like prey rather than a fellow predator. Yeah. I love that. It's, yeah. I, I've never been able to substantiate it. So it's purely anecdotal at this point, but what yeah. fun to think about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I, was, I believe it. I mean, so much of how of our brains and an animal's brain is based on pheromones and chemicals mm -hmm. and hormones. Like, I don't doubt that a vegetarian would smell different. Sure. That's very cool. Okay. The, the, the heavy hitter I forgot. Okay. Uh, what is the future of gun ownership in America? Do we need to start prepping? Outline Joseph von Benedict's gun plan for America. And this is sort of a question about the politics of gun ownership as we're seeing, you know, th things, things are very much in flux. You know, things are very much in flux in the firearms world, but there are almost as many or even a few more good things happening than there are negative things. See, I went through the assault weapons ban of the Clinton era, right? I saw that whole thing go down. Everything from the questionable method at which it was implemented to seeing the response, the questionable effectiveness of it, and the way that it was simply allowed to expire after the sunset of that 10-year law because there was no way to prove that it had done anything beneficial for for humankind or the gun industry, right? But that was a low point at that time. There was legitimate reason to question our future with firearms. These days, I think what with the explosion of interest in suppressors, that's a great thing. Look at how far that's taking us into both a, a safer method of shooting where it's hearing safe, right? A more uh, civilized uh, responsible interaction with our fellow shooters so we're not blowing each other's ears out with giant muzzle brakes. Being a little dramatic here, mm -hmm. but you know what I'm talking no, about, I mean, right? I don't think that's dramatic. <laughs> Having shot next to someone with a muzzle brake. Yeah, and the, uh, the tremendous increase in farm ownership interest, even simply incurred by the, the I like to call it the panic-demic, mm -hmm. the covid thing that kicked in a couple of years ago and 
I mean, we gained, what was it, something like 40 million new gun owners? People that went out and purchased a personal protection firearm at that time. That's another reason that ammunition has been so hard to find for a couple of years. Because if you just look at 40 million, million people, if they each bought two 50-count boxes of 9mm ammunition, which is probably conservative, what's 40 million times 100? That's a lot of ammunition that new gun owners are sucking out of the supply chain, right? It's a beautiful thing for firearms owners. So I am not a uh, pessimist mm -hmm. when it comes to the future of our firearms here in the United States. Now, of course, it's cyclical. Every time we have a, an election, I don't want to get too political here, but uh, you can track this with data. When you get an election in which the Democratic Party wins, gun sales skyrocket, right? And paranoia leaps up. Then when you get an election where the conservatives dominate, people relax. They're uh, less concerned. And so, I mean, like they jokingly say that President Obama was the best gun salesman in history until Biden came along, mm -hmm. you know? So whatever your political affiliation is, there is a response there to that uh, political cycle. And you can also chart the fact that political uh, party leadership tends to very regularly switch back and forth. If you look throughout the history of our company, our country, it's going to be liberal, then conservative, then liberal and conservative. And over the centuries, the definition of the two terms even change and sometimes reverse roles. Uh, you know, I'm always in favor of complete liberty in our gun rights. In fact, if you go back, if I can dig into the Second Amendment just a little bit, you know, the, the right of the people to, well, the security of a free state being necessary. I can't even quote it correctly here. Uh, what a shameful thing. Um, the right of the people to keep and bear arms being necessary to the security of a free state. You know, that right should not be infringed, basically. A well-regulated militia, that's where I was going. That term, well-regulated, in the day that it was written, the Second Amendment was written, meant well-equipped. Regulation, quality, rifles, and, and equipment. So well-regulated didn't mean well-governed, well-curbed, uh, you know, or even guided by strict, um, whatever you want to call it, laws. Well-regulated means, in the context of the Second Amendment, well-equipped. The reason that our militia was so effective in the Revolutionary War against your forefathers, the Brits, right? Oh, we weren't there yet. <laughs> my wife's British, and my mother-in-law always teases me on the 4th of July that I came back under British rule. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the reason we were so effective is because the frontiersmen had literally cutting-edge firearms at the time. They were rifled. The British muskets weren't. We could stand back 150 yards and make shot, you know, center mass chest shots, headshots even, where the British were doing mass volleys with very low uh, you know, impact success rates because they're shooting smooth bores. So our forefathers fully understood the fact that effective firearms are very important to the maintaining of, of a free country. And I mean, there I've known people that have argued with very good effect, even Harvard law professors that, the American people should 
have full freedom to own fully automatic firearms. Mm -hmm. Because in case of a extremely corrupt leadership, whatever form you envision that, whether it's an alien invasion or a domestic dispute or you know, one of our communistic uh, frenemies from overseas, mm -hmm. it may very well come down to the people to, to defend our country and our freedoms. Mm -hmm. Don't mean to get off on a, a rant there, but no, that's not a rant. That's exactly what I'm asking about. Yeah, I do think that our our future will, you know, slowly our gun rights will erode. I think that's inevitable with history being what it is. I think it's going to be very slowly in America because there are so many very passionate yet very clear-minded, thoughtful, practical people that understand the fact that weapons and freedom go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other mm -hmm. as far as maintaining our liberties here. Yeah, no, I, my experience growing up in the UK is certainly that there's a, a distinct difference in psychology of the people when the people are armed or they're not, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I, that's why I love it here. <laughs> There's a fundamental wildness to the U.S., which it really, like, it sounds cliche, but it's I think it's true of both the people and the nature, obviously, and they're interconnected. Uh, but I think it's related to gun. I mean, that's part of it. Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, let's just keep our fingers crossed that we're smart enough to maintain our firearms ownership rights and don't let our uh, our national security and our parts as civilians, as citizens, decline to the point where it takes a catastrophic world event to reawaken us mm -hmm. about you know what it takes to at that point probably regain those fundamental human rights and liberties, and then to maintain them to hold on to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I hope we don't have to be preppers, but I think all of us are a little bit at heart, just being Americans. Yeah, I don't know. I, I haven't been, but with COVID and things like that, it sort of encourages that tendency. Uh, yeah, no, it's hopefully we won't have to restorm the Bastille. You know, I think in every, yeah, hopefully not. Uh, in every red-blooded American, there's a little bit of Boy Scout, you know, and the, the motto there is be prepared. And for those of us that have traveled internationally and talked to friends in, whether it's the UK or uh, Africa or whatever, they tell us, don't let your firearms freedoms be lost. Yeah. It's, you know, they're so hard to bring back once they've been lost. Now, again, you know, our, our assault weapons ban sunsetted and was quietly Put where nobody would think about it because it was such a failure and we have had some great triumphs like dc versus heller in the concealed carry in the personal you know protection firearms realm i think concealed firearm permits are at an all-time high more states now than ever recognize constitutional carry where you don't have to have a permit as long as you're an adult without a record you can carry concealed firearm legally i think we're on a good path here we just need to be vigilant and not lose that path mm -hmm. That's a good, that's good optimism. Oftentimes people I think are just, we're given towards being cynical and negative out of the like default setting. And that's great that you are providing us with the context, you know, thank you.